Blog Talk Radio. And we are broadcasting live from the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 49 in Phoenix, Arizona. I'd like to thank all the guests for tuning in. Uh, evidently, Buddy is at a, still at the halftime party. Can't get him uh, to come back into the studio. We're not going to let that slow us down. Ryan Young is here from Molecular Reptiles. He's going to be joining us shortly. Um, and I wanted to say just really looking forward to a great show tonight. I guess we can refer to this episode as the sports show. We've got Super Bowl 49 that we're broadcasting live from right now. Our Marillia family in Australia just finished the Australian Open. Uh, and I'm sure our European crew has some crazy football games going on right now all weekend. Uh, I really have no idea. Um, but uh, obviously we're going to talk tonight uh, with Ryan Young about uh, Condros. That's why you tuned in and, and that's why we're going to have the show so um i think maybe we will uh forego the news i know buddy and i want to talk about some things recently uh in the morelia community uh i understand buddy's in the elevator on his way up to the studio now um while he's getting in i'm going to go ahead and bring ryan young on the show and uh so Without further ado, let's bring on Ryan. Let me get him in the studio here. Ryan, how are you? Are you here with us? Yep. Yep. Well, thanks for uh, joining the show. Thanks for taking time out of your uh, day. I know you've been watching uh, the Super Bowl with the rest of us. Uh, It looks like so far it's kind of Seattle's game. So, uh, but uh, again, thanks for for any uh, weird outbursts. (laughs) <laughs> no worries there i'm sure you've got a lot of money uh bet on the game you probably had some of those crazy prop bets i, I actually uh i actually bet on how many times buddies was going to have to leave the show to go to the bathroom the over and under oh. was one and a half times uh and then well, i, took I, don't, the, I don't know I took him well the... enough to know if that's a good bet or not but uh if you're making I that took, bet took... it's probably you're probably pretty safe I took the over, and I'm pretty confident with it. <laughs> that's good. You know him better than I do, so that's probably, that's probably a safe one. Well, like I said, um, obviously we're going to do a lot of Condro uh, talking tonight. Uh, very uh, interesting to hear a lot of a lot of your uh, uh, husbandry and, and Condro adventures. But um, 
I think we talked before the show. I'd really like to hear you, you recently came back from a, a voyage to uh, Australia. And uh, yeah, I listened to your yeah. show. I listened to the show that you did with uh, Eric and Owen, our brothers on Marillia Python Radio. And uh, so I got some snippets of your adventure, but I thought maybe you'd take a few minutes and 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 talk about that. Uh, you, you guys battled. You guys battled the cold, the wind, travel challenges, dehydration, uh, substandard camping equipment. Uh, you did some pet store herping, <laughs> and so maybe yeah, no, we uh, we got we got after it. That's for sure. But uh, the, why don't you give us a breakdown? It was an amazing about, experience. About the trip. Uh, well, for me, my main goal, uh, we we headed to uh, West Australia. Um, so, obviously, we weren't herping for green pythons, unfortunately. But uh, right. my main objective in the whole journey was to get my hands on an Australian olive python, or Lyasis barani, um, which is considered keep, a pretty difficult keep, snake to find. So, right, and you keep those? Currently, right? Do you, keep, no. do you have those? <laughs> no, no, nobody in the states I know of keeps them. I wish, but part of oh, that that's, that's why I was so uh, lunatic crazed <laughs> to find one. Is uh, it's likely a python? The only chance I'd have to see one is in the wild. So it's uh, just thought, what the heck? If I'm going to go there, that's what I'm after. So that so was you had a mission. That's I had a mission. <laughs> so. Well, I, I have traveled to that part of the world, uh, not not Australia, but uh, but I've been in Micronesia, so I know the challenges of going halfway around the world. What what was your your trip like, time wise? And uh, the trip over was actually pretty good. We um, Nick lives probably forty five minutes to an hour uh, west of here, and we were we were flying out of Seattle, Washington. So, uh, which is about a five-hour drive from Spokane, Washington, which is where Nick lives. And so I got up early, drove to Nick's house, and we drove from Nick's house to Seattle, met up with Marks, and uh, got on our flight to Dubai, which was a grueling 14 hours or 14-and-a-half-hour flight from Seattle. But it uh, went yeah, by pretty you quick went with since Nick, we were so excited. You, you went with Nick Mutton and, and Mark who? who? Who was that? Goyer. He's, just, he's okay. a local friend of ours. Okay, and fantastic. So, uh, and then we were meeting up with uh, Adam Elliott, who's a Seattle herper that's originally from Australia, um, who's now living in Seattle, and then we met up with him and his brother while we were over there. Wow, very good. I think, Buddy, have you stumbled into the uh, control room? I think that's you. I am here, I think. Now it's a party. <laughs> yeah, now it's a party. Sorry we had to pull you away from Katy Perry. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, um, I don't know if Brian has if, if told you, but, um, you know, we, we actually turned down a Super Bowl gig to keep this show on. We were we were asked to do some color commentary during the halftime show, but we opted to uh, stick with this program venue. Well, that's funny. I was asked quite a few times today, and I said, well, either I'm that good or that bad that they scheduled me against the Super Bowl. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, figure, I'm figuring it's the uh, it's the flop show. You guys are just looking to fill some time. No, we needed a big name. We needed a big, big name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know well, if I'm a big well, man in the green pleasant community. <laughs> well, uh, buddy, uh, I Ryan try. was just you just getting. Ryan was just getting started about telling telling uh, the listeners about his trip to Australia, so I'll let him continue. Okay. Uh, yes, yeah, so we uh, flew to Dubai, and then we had a 90-minute layover in Dubai, and then it was a 10-hour flight from Dubai to Perth. And from we got into Perth at noon, uh, West Australia time, and then we drove north, headed to the Pilbara. So I don't think I slept for like 54 hours, but... <laughs> it was quite the uh, it was too much to see as a you know I mean I'm not just a python guy I used to be big time into parrots and tropical fish and so Australia has long been a uh, a destination of choice for me so seeing all those cockatoos and parakeets flying around was pretty wild so you flew in and you got you guys got a rental car and you and you headed are you headed west? No, I headed north out of Perth to the Pilbara. Um and uh first we, you know, grabbed up some camping gear at a local I can't remember what store it was. It's kinda of like their equivalent <laughs> of Kmart. And uh headed out. So we camped on the side okay. of the road. Um, most of the time. Got a few hotels during the trip, but finally just camping. Yeah, and uh, yeah, from what I understand, wild. what I understand, you guys ran into some cooler than expected temperatures there. When we first got there, um, it was cold in Perth. We were gonna originally we were gonna look for uh, southwestern carpet pythons outside of Perth the first night, and it was a cold snap in Perth. So we figured that was gonna be an exercise in futility. So we headed north trying to find some heat, um, and then we did. Uh, we did good. Um, the first, those next those two two nights were real nice um, and warm. But then, after we went through the Pilbara and over to the Exmouth Peninsula, um, or I guess we went all the way up to Eighty Mile Beach area um, with Sandfire Roadhouse and Pardue. Uh, and then when we headed back to Exmouth is when it got cold. So. I've been told we would have found a lot more stuff if it had been warmer, but it, uh, we still had a great yeah. time and found a lot, a lot of things. But the highlight, obviously, was in the Pilbara finding the Baron Eye. So that was my yeah, main can objective. You, uh, so needless to say, yeah, I was over yeah, the moon. Maybe you can describe um, kind of the course of event that, that led up to you discovering those. Uh, yeah, the first... Um, they pretty much live mostly in, like, rocky gorges on water courses in the Pilbara. Um, so your best bet is the home, you know, uh, in, in in or around water. Uh, so we, the first, the second night we were there, we made it to uh, Kirinjini National Park, um, which is filled with these big, deep gorges. Um, and we walked down into a gorge the first night looking for them. Um, we're unsuccessful, and then uh, the next night we went to uh, Chichester uh, Millstream National Park, which is further northwest of Kiranjini, and that's where we went to a watering hole and swam around for a while, had a good time, 
And then uh, it was starting to get dark, so we went and ate. And after it got dark, we walked back down into the canyon, gorge-type little situation we were in, and working our way down, and Simon headed out in front, and we were all kind of looking around for different things, and we were, I found this praying mantis, and Simon's brother was interested in it, and so we were all kind of checking it out when we heard Simon starting to scream. <laughs> so I knew <laughs> I knew at that point something good was happening. I pictured coming up on him, and he was going to be holding some giant python, you know, that was trying to go back into a rock crack or something, but it was just yeah. a, about a, a six-foot West Australian olive python stretched out on the beach right in front of the water. So, it yeah, was, I saw uh, your pictures. I saw your pictures, Ryan. They were obviously taken during the day, right? I mean, did you, you found that animal during day, the day, daytime? Uh, no, we found it at night. Um, it was at night? Yeah, we took pictures of it during the day and let it go. Okay. So most of your most of the herping you you did was at night. Is that correct? Um, well, in Australia, you're pretty much herping all the time. Uh, during the day, the lizards are out. Um, some snakes are out, but it's mostly mostly lizards. Um, so when you're looking for snakes, you're pretty much looking at night. Uh, but you can see bearded dragons and big monitor lizards during the day just walking along the side of the road. So well, you're all, if you're in Australia, you're pretty much herping all the time if you're not in a city. So. <laughs> 20, 24 <laughs> hours a day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's always there's always something out. It seems. What uh, what other species did you come across that that you were um, that, that you found? Well, my main my main goal is the bear and I, and then my second goal is to see all six pythons that were in the region that that I was going to be in. Uh, we were unsuccessful in that. We did find two blackheads and three Stimson's pythons. But we were not nice. able to find llamas, um, pygmies, or imbricata. We did find a bor imbricata, but that was as close as we got to a live living one. We played with one at a pet store. <laughs> kind of <kinda laughs> cheated just to see one, but that was not uh, not a herping find. And you attribute uh, a lot of that, you think, just to the weather? Or just luck. Um, yeah, just we got we had really some pretty cold nights, um, and so, I mean, I'm not an expert on field herping Australia, but some of the people I've talked to since and during were saying how if it was better weather, we would have seen a lot more right. species than we did. But we saw millions of geckos. I mean, you practically couldn't run or you couldn't drive down the street without seeing geckos. It got to where you didn't even stop for them after a while. If you thought it was the same species you'd already seen anyway. Yeah, yeah, nice. Nice. So oh, well, you'd, you'd, you'd go back there? I'm sorry, buddy. I know. What was that? Brian, how well are, how well are uh, Americans welcomed their herping um we didn't have any trouble the we uh we were taking pictures a few times at night of stuff and the um on especially around Exmouth, there was a pretty good sized military base uh, and occasionally the military police would 
come and check out what we were doing, but once they realized we were just messing around taking pictures of snakes, they didn't bother us or anything. Um, you definitely, you're not, you know, you've got to be careful. You're not, you can't collect anything. You're not supposed to, you know, you just, you're not supposed to manipulate them, really. You're just supposed to take pictures of them as you find them. Um, you know, you can play fast and loose with those rules if you want to, but, you know, it is highly against the law for an uh, <laughs> American to collect anything and even just to take pictures of it later, so. Wow. That, that's good to know. Yeah, pretty much mm-hmm. uh, take a picture of it as you find it, and then you won't have any problems. Okay. Was that your first time there, Ryan? Yep. It was my first time in Australia. Sure and uh, would you last, go but... back? I was going to see. I was going to ask. Uh, yeah, uh, I back. dream of going back uh, every minute of every day, practically. So it was an amazing, amazing deal. And there's a whole lot of the country. You know, I still want to go to the Kimberley. Obviously, I named my second daughter after the place. And then uh want to go to the Cape and look for green pythons and go to the center and see all there is to see there. So got plenty of uh plenty of ideas still. And uh still have some more finished business in the Tilbury, so <laughs> where would you go next? What would be round two for you? Uh probably the Kimberly would be my most wanted to go. I mean it's hard not to want to go to the Cape because obviously I'm a Green Python fan, so it would be amazing to find one of those but it's uh, the Kimberley's just a wild place, so that would probably be my, my nice. next place. Go look for own place. <laughs> That's right, buddy. Did you have any other uh, questions about the Australia trip? Um, so you said you visited a uh, pet store. What is the? I guess just visiting that pet store. Fairly common to find reptiles in pet stores in Australia, or do you have to go to a specialty store? Um, I guess I, I don't know if I'm qualified to comment there. We were driving to Perth um, on our way out of town, or on our way back to town to fly out, and uh, we probably saw just a pet store on the side of the highway. And I kind of jokingly said, "I wonder if they have, you know, an invocata." that we could look at and because uh, there's one of the, at the time, it, you know, they they have a keep list. You can only have certain species and Imbricata seems to be one that's fairly commonly kept on the west, uh, west okay. coast. So we thought, well, we'll stop and see. So we turned around and went back and sure enough, they had three of them. So we were able to <laughs> talk the guy into letting us play with one. So we officially, I've seen a live Imbricata and a dead one, but um, I have, you know, because they're still pretty much non-existent outside of, or in the herp, or in the trade outside of Australia. So it was okay. nice to get my hands your, on one. <laughs> what was what was the most memorable experience other than the uh, olive python? Um, swimming in the ocean on the reef was pretty good, but just all the the sheer vastness and just reptiles virtually everywhere you look was 
was pretty mind blowing. As a guy, I mean, as I think Idaho has like 30 species of amphibians and reptiles, so. <laughs> and up north there's only like 12, I think. So around my house, there's pretty much like rubber boas and some salamanders to look for. So just the sheer number of species you could potentially find. I mean, it was in the hundreds, but in the areas we were at, you could have potentially seen hundreds of different species of reptiles. Right, right. Nice. All right, Bill. Very nice. We need to get there. Yes. Uh, I know Eric uh, Burke is committed. What did he say on his show, right? 2016? Ryan uh, going to yeah, go? That's what he said. We, we tried to get him to come with us, but um, he couldn't get the time. We were gone over Thanksgiving, so um, yes. that's a tough time for his career, uh, I've heard. So he wasn't able to get away. Very good. 2016. That's that's right around the corner. It takes a, it takes a year to plan that trip, I'm sure. Uh no, we pretty much I didn't know I was going till late August and we went in um no, November. Yeah, we yeah, we got we got back December 1st, left late November. So. Wow. But, uh you don't need that much, you know. Sometimes you just got to go. <laughs> yeah. Can't plan it too long. Well, buddy, we just we need to get Trooper, you know, fly us on his jet. That's all there is to it. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. He would probably be up for that. I think he would. Go crash at Dan's house and go look for Congress. There you go. There you <laughs> yep. go. Yep. Yeah, I'd like to do that myself. All right. Let's move in. I guess to the meat of the show, what uh, what the listeners want to listen to, we it's it's kind of um, you know normally we have people give us their contact information and such at the end of the show, but Buddy and I thought it's a good idea to do it at the beginning because after two hours we lose the live audience, it goes to tape, and sometimes we even run out of time there. So Ryan, why don't you tell the listeners um, first of all the best way to if they want to learn more about either your trip, yourself, your animals, um, how to get in touch with you, and then I guess we'd just start with kind of uh, if you want to introduce yourself to the listeners. Uh, most of them will probably already know who you are and what you do, but um, let's just start there. Uh, yeah, so obviously, um, like so many these days, uh, Facebook is a simple way to get, a, get in touch. Um so I have my personal Facebook page, which is, uh, you know, just my name, Ryan Young. And then I have a molecular reptile page. And then I have a website that's www.molecularreptile.com. Um, so I'm fairly easy to get a hold of. <laughs> Very good. Very good. And um, I guess why don't, you know, tell the listeners a little bit about uh, what you're currently uh, keeping and working with, what you're uh, collection consists of? Um, my collection is pretty diverse. I keep uh, lots of different pythons. Um, green pythons are one of my favorite, but I guess my collection doesn't totally reflect that because I don't have that many at the moment. <laughs> so, I don't have very many of those, but I've got uh, a lot of it's quality. Pythons. It's quality, not quantity. So, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely need Azuria back in the collection. I miss having those, so... We'll have the uh, northern species pretty soon again. But I guess technically I do have two of them, but I keep threatening to 
It's been to a friend of mine's house since there. Not locality stuff. <laughs> okay. That's, that must sound crazy to you guys. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't sound crazy. Nope, yeah. not to me. What do you? Okay, so what do you have? Non. Let's start with the non-green tree stuff. I know uh, uh, we can't talk about it too much on the show, but I know you're a ball python guy, like myself. Uh, yeah, I got quite a few ball pythons. Uh, I mainly do like one in sixteen projects, so double recessive stuff. Uh, working on some triple recessive things. That's where my ball python interests lie. Um, as far as other species, oh, I keep quite a few. I'd probably list them all. Um, you know, I got savus, all the anteriza that are available <laughs> anyway. Um, Wolf aspidites. Um, Dunn's pythons, water pythons, macrops, uh, what else? It's hard to, a few different carpets, uh, Timor pythons, what else is out there? Got a few, what, Tracy Eye, some Halmaharas, yeah, Halmaharas, um, and some scrubs, a couple scrubs. So, mix and match a few different things. Nice. I didn't know you were keeping uh, any carpets at all. Very nice. Yeah, I have uh, Arians, Darwins, Jungles. I think that's what I got. Hey, yeah. Ryan, I got a quick question for you. Sure. You're, you're done. You said you're keeping Duns pythons. Yeah. How many do you have? Yeah. I have four. Okay. I have nice. Three, three males and a female. They're really old. Um, okay. Some of the original founder Duns. Dunn's pythons in the country, uh, so they're—I don't know if they'll breed or not. I've only had them for a few months, so see what happens. Okay, okay, yeah, there you don't, um, you know, being a fan of this, you know, some of the snakes that Ryan keeps that aren't green tree pythons, the savus and the maclots and the waters and stuff. You don't—I uh, was didn't really know too many people in the U.S. even had Dunn's pythons, so. Do you know if anybody? No, there was pretty much one guy um, that had a a group of older animals when I was. We were able to talk him out of some of them. Try to try to get them more established. Um, Yeah, they're probably the rarest taxon of python in the United States that's readily available. Uh, Right, not readily available, but I mean, there's. I think there's twelve. Somewhere between twelve and twenty Duns pythons in this country, which is right. you know, there's probably that's there's more uh, you know rough scale pythons by times that there is you know Dunai. So they're right. pretty rare. How, uh, how do they compare to the Maclots as far as size and temperament? Um, I don't think they. Well, I, like I said, the animals I have are all wild-caught adults, and they're really old, um, and they're not very big. So I would, I've seen some pretty huge maclodi. So I guess mm-hmm. from my limited experience, I would say they're smaller than maclodi, um, bigger than sovereignsus, obviously. But okay, they, uh, um, they're you know most people get them mixed up with maclodi, but when you see them in person, right. it's like oh wow, yeah, they're not. They're not a maclodon. I don't know why. I guess it was just the lousy pictures of them from, I mean, I think the last time they were coming in was the early or mid to late 90s. 
so right. you didn't yep. have uh, you didn't have the digital cameras and quality photography stuff you have today. So I think most people um just thought it was a you know, another Mac Watch Python in it. And they're really not. They are uh, quite a bit different. Very nice. Very well good luck with those. I'd love to Yeah, I really uh <laughs> I'll be super excited yeah. if I can get some of those, but so far I haven't seen anything out of them. I don't know if they're, uh, you know, they've been in one collection for a long time, so coming to my house was probably a shock to their system. So it might take a few years for them to get into my rhythm, if uh, if at all. Like I said, they're they're all wild caught, and they've been, you know, they're probably all 20 years old. So wow, we'll see what happens. Well, very good, Ryan. Maybe um, we can uh, talk a little bit about uh, green trees. How you got started with green trees? Uh, what what led you to become interested in, the, uh, in in acquiring and keeping green trees? Uh yeah. Well, that's that's a long long story. Not a long story, but it's funny. Uh, when I was a kid, I had these animal encyclopedias. I think they were called like New Funkin Wagnalls or something. There's like twenty of them. In the <laughs> yeah. Set. And uh, yeah. there's a picture on the Python section. It was, you know, you pretty much look up different things. And in the Python section, there was the first picture was a picture of a of a green python, probably an Australian one, I would guess. But it was either an Australian one or a Southern New Guinea. And uh, you know, green snake on with a white white stripe sitting in a rainforest. And I just thought, wow, that's you know, that's the most stunning creature I've ever seen. And I just wanted one. <laughs> So from as long as I can remember, I wanted one. And then uh, I ended up working at lots of various pet stores when I was younger. And uh, a so your parents went right. Out, your parents, your parents went right out and got you a green tree, right? No, no, they pretty much uh, <laughs> the only snake I was allowed to have was a uh, rubber bone. Well, that was the only <laughs> snake I kept for a while. Uh, I had a gopher <laughs> snake in my closet that they didn't know about. Um, and uh, I guess they did end up letting me have a ball python for a while, too, when I was into parrots. But I didn't have that for, I don't know, probably a year or so. And then, uh, but it was after I moved out and I was working at a local pet store, they had a, uh, we kept getting a, a wholesale list from a supplier in Seattle. And they had gotten a baby green tree python. Um and they had it for, for a long, you know, for probably a year or so. And every week I'd look at the price list and I really wanted it. And then one day it uh, came up, um, they was getting big and so they wanted to get rid of it, so they put it on a special. So I was able to uh, convince my boss to let me go to Seattle and buy it. And uh, so, yeah, I drove over to Seattle and picked her up and brought her home and at the time, I wasn't keeping, I think I just had a fish at home. I had, didn't even have any reptiles at all. And uh, so I took a 29-gallon fish tank that had a broken front and put a sliding glass door on it and put a heat or a canopy, like a fish tank light canopy over the top of the aquarium, put a screen top on it and uh, a 60-watt 
ceramic heater, and uh, <laughs> that's what I brought her home to. So she was uh, an amazingly tolerant snake. She put up with all of my how, learning curves. How long did you keep her, or did you have her? Um, when did I get her? That was 1998, I think, late 1998. Um, and when did I had her till she passed. Uh, I think I had got three clutches out of her over the years. I probably had her till. Did I move? Yeah, I probably had her till 2000. What, 2008 or nine? Before she had complications nice. with the clutch and just never started eating again. Passed away. But yeah, she put up with a lot of indignities from me. <laughs> well, I think Buddy is uh, Buddy. Is that you posting posting some pictures of Ryan's uh, animals right now on the GTP Keeper Facebook page? Yes, that's me. Yeah. Yep. Very nice. Very nice. We'll uh, we'll get into to to what he uh, is keeping here in a little bit. But uh, wow, those are fantastic. Thanks. Definitely. So, so Ryan, when you brought home the con, were you still living at home with your parents when you brought the condro home, or were you you living on your own? No, no, I was living. I was living in an apartment with, uh, with, I guess, my future wife, <laughs> my girlfriend at the time. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so I brought her home and set her up in a twenty-nine gallon tank and had the heat emitter on there and just, I didn't know any better that they were. You know, quote unquote, so difficult. So, it uh, she proved to be quite amiable, and I man, I kept that thing any every possible way you could keep a green pipe on. Them. She didn't <laughs> didn't show didn't have any problems. So, couldn't have asked for a better better starter snake. Which I know Great. sounds you know pretty crazy. Most most people don't recommend starting with those, I guess, but. It can be done. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's, it's, easy. it's you know. it, yeah, Un- unconventional, but uh, yeah, obviously uh, it served you well. Yeah, I mean, I, I like pythons, and I had python experience from from working at the pet stores and the little bit, you know, having the ball python in my house, and so I wasn't a total, I wasn't a complete newbie, I guess, but I wasn't. Uh, I didn't have a lot of experience anyway. So. And in some ways, I well, think that s- serves me. I don't know. I think sometimes if you have too many preconceived notions, um, you end up screwing things up. And I know I've made my fair share of green python mistakes, and it was mostly when I tried to do what other people were doing. I finally just realized, well, what you're doing is working, so why are you trying to imitate what other people are doing? Uh, well, I think I think that's a an excellent point, and you know, uh, I'm the textbook example of what you said about having prior experience. When I I'd kept ball pythons and carpet pythons, and uh, I haven't been keeping green tea trees green trees that long, but I immediately begin keeping them too warm, and it was only because of my past experience with uh 
with the animals uh, that I that I had kept successfully in the past. And uh, I learned quickly that green trees will tolerate uh, many husbandry mistakes, but they will not tolerate uh, over uh, over warming. Yeah, not, they don't seem to like consistently too warm. They can definitely handle getting hot as long as they cool off. I know uh, right. in the summertime, my my snake building gets pretty hot, and they don't they don't seem to care. You know, it always drops back down to the ambience that I want at night. But they definitely yeah. experience whole room temps. You know, well into the mid to high 80s with no ill effect. I wouldn't want to keep right. them that way <laughs> all the time. Yeah, 24/7. Yeah. Before we uh, go into, because I really want to, I want the listeners to hear, and, and I think I know just from talking to you and uh, knowing your husbandry habits, but I really want our listeners to hear, um, you know, your theories and the way you keep your your chondros. But I, I, I also want to hear, you know, what you said you're not keeping a lot of green trees, but maybe you can tell us uh, currently what you what you do keep um, and what you have. Uh, currently in your collection yeah no um a few years ago i had quite a, i had like you know some highland type animals i guess if you want to call them that um some kofias biox uh and then i was able to get a pair of arus that were produced by um chris Ruley. i think that's yeah and uh and they were not, you know, they're not bad looking. They're not super high white, but they're not, you know, they're not as as low white as I guess a lot of people think most captive bred aroos were. And I just, I'd always liked aroos, but I'd, I'd always, I don't know, I'd bought into all the stuff about you can't produce high white ones. And, you, you know, and I finally was just like, well, I don't, I just, I didn't think that was true. I thought there had to be, you know, obviously, they have the genes, you know, to be high white or you wouldn't never have a high white one. And so I just thought there's got to be a way to do it. And I started paying attention to what other people in the past had done. And they'd always just bred, you know, two wild cots to each other. And um, they didn't get the results they wanted right off the bat. Well, I've, I know enough about selective breeding that, you know, you, to expect instant results on a project like that in, in some ways is uh not very smart. So I just thought, well, these are related. They're from high white parents. I was curious if, uh, you know, if you breed related ones together, if if that'll pay off. So I I ended up getting rid of, uh, I thought, well, this is going to be a long-term project. It's going to take a lot of animals. I don't have room for a lot of chondros, so I decided to part with all of my other chondros and just work with the roos. So okay. uh, a few years ago, I did that, and so now I have the original Ruli Aruz that I bought or traded for, I can't remember, and then I've since added uh, a male that was uh, farm-bred or, you know, wild-caught small. Uh, he's really uh, high-white, and I ended up recently, I got a a big giant female that I didn't raise and she's real nice and blue and, and fairly high white. So I thought it was worth the uh, gamble to to get her. And so and then I have uh some babies that I've produced. But so that's what consists my condo collection consists of at the moment. 
Nice. The big female that you're talking about, was she uh, captive bred or wild caught, or do you know her background? Um, I got it from a friend who got it from a guy, you know, one of those kind of a deals. And, uh, right. They did the whole, oh, you know, it's captive bred. I, I don't know. I don't. I think, I think it'd be lucky if it was captive hatched. You know, more than likely yeah. it was just a young, you know, a young import. So. Right. Who else uh, in but, the community do you know, Ryan? That's uh, that's working with the ruse. Do you know? Um, there's a few guys. I don't. I mean, I don't know if anybody's doing it quite as. as Seriously, as me, I guess there there probably is, but I don't you know I don't know everybody, so uh, I apologize to anybody if they're offended that <laughs> I left them out. But uh, I don't know what Chris really is doing anymore. I've heard rumors he doesn't have stuff. I hear rumors he does. I don't know. Um, there's uh, a guy named uh, Craig in Utah that has maroos. Um, I mean, there's you know. He's just a guy I've talked to a few times. So, uh, other than that, I don't know who all is doing what with them. I tried to get a female nice. a couple weeks ago, but that didn't work out. So, <laughs> yeah, those things happen. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, you know that's the the trouble with Facebook. I guess is uh, people don't. I don't know. They don't always get their stuff right away or something like that. So, lost right, out on that right. one. We're gonna. T- we're going to talk about Facebook. We're going to get to talk about Facebook uh, a little bit later in the show. Obviously, uh, it's a kind of a uh, opinionated topic right now, so we're, we're going to definitely get your input on Facebook here in a little bit. Yeah, no problem. Uh, I guess uh, maybe now, you know, maybe you you can discuss some of your husbandry, you know, your theories and how you keep your animals. Um, you probably don't remember, but couple of years ago I actually contacted you through the MVF because I I knew that you kept ball pythons and uh I knew that our room temperatures were probably going to be very similar. You were very instrumental in, in helping me, you and several other people kinda of get my room going and adjusted to keeping green trees. So you know maybe wow. you could uh, I think I do remember. I remember having conversations with a few people so uh, Yeah, I mean sure. I you know, just uh just a complete noob before I even acquired my first one, I, I contacted you. And that's one of the things I wanted to mention about, you know, I think probably all, almost everybody we certainly we've had on the show, but uh, the great thing about the Condor community is, is that I felt very comfortable contacting you and contacting a host of other people that I had never even talked to and said, Hey, listen, you know, this is what I want to do. And, and, you know, can you help me transition? And, you know, you were very gracious in your, and sharing what you had done that was successful uh, for you, so well, maybe you can. Way. I mean, we all we all have a, you know got to pay it forward. I guess we were all we were all there at some point, and we all had people help us well, along the way. So glad it's, it's uh, not something that you have. It's not something that you have to do. It's something that you ch- choose to do, and uh, that's really one of the great things about uh, the community that that we work in. So. Appreciate that, and yeah, so yeah, no. Maybe... Most of the guys I've gotten a hold of over the years have all been, uh, you know, even if we disagree on certain things, we we all seem to be, you know, nothing wrong with a good disagreement. So we all learn stuff, but uh, everybody's right. been great and nice that I've talked to. So yeah, it's a it's a good community. 
Why agree. don't you? I, I, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Just just kind of start, you, you, and you can start wherever you want. How you uh, how you keep your room, or or um, you know, just well, you know, why don't you go yeah, from no there? Yeah, no problem. Um, so like I said, I started keeping green pythons. I didn't have any other snakes. So when I first got them, I was just keeping them in fish tanks in the uh, spare spare or extra bedroom of the apartment I was in. And, um, I started, I ended up, when I didn't have a heated room, um, I would notice they did bask more. They hung out near their heat more. You know, they would use more of the room or, or different varying temperatures. Uh, I started getting into other pythons and my collection grew. And so I ended up realizing that heating the room was the route I wanted to go. And after I started heating the room, I realized that the uh, green pythons pretty much, for the most part, wanted nothing to do with the heat, at least the way I was offering it. Um, Right. And uh, so I, I still provided it for quite a few years. Um, and I, like I said, I've kept them so many different ways. I ended up putting them in big cages, little cages, you name it. And, uh, I finally, I ended up moving, um, got a house. And when I moved the green tree pythons to my house, I ended up, I didn't plug their heat panels in, um, you know, just the confusion of the move. And I was noticing like, wow, they're, they're hanging out in, you know, parts of the cage. I never see them hang out in. And it wasn't until I realized that, oh, your heat's off. <laughs> that, uh, I was like, well, maybe that has something to do with it. So I plugged the heat panels back in, and lo and behold, they went back to their typical sitting as far away from it as they could. And I just kind of was like, huh. I thought that was interesting. And so I, um, and like a lot of guys, you end up getting snakes on a whim that you weren't really expecting. And, I kept a lot of those and just big Rubbermaid containers sitting on top of racks in the room. And I always noticed that the green pythons I had that were just sitting in Rubbermaids were more active. They seemed to be, um, you know, they used more of the cage that was available to them, even though it was smaller. And they just kind of started putting the pieces together and realizing that at least the way I was keeping them, they appeared to not, want excess heat and so I end up you know now I don't even give them heat unless they're gravity at this point but it was a long road to get to this point and trying different things and so and I think um, it's I think it's important that you point out that th- these this is all under in a heated room scenario yeah so your yeah. room was the ambient temperatures so yeah it was yeah, not yeah. household ambient temperatures it was uh you know, I usually have a temp between 78 and 82 degrees. Um, and at those temps, they they seem perfectly content to go about their daily business with no issues. But I also don't feed so big to... meals. I don't know if it would matter. I have right. some big meals with no available basking area, and, and it hasn't been a problem. But, um, you know, I guess... The way I keep them is almost like more of an all-around system than a one-size-fits-all. I've had people like, oh, I can't. They want to know how I do things, and I try to tell them, and they just want to pick, like, one thing to do. And I don't know if they're successful because if you want to grow them huge and feed them big meals, then, you know, it might not 
giving him no work. heat might not be the thing to do doing that. I wouldn't know. I haven't tried that, but um, so far all the animals I've kept have uh, seemed to flourish from the uh, limited or no basking site. So, again, I've, yeah, I think pretty much can't sell on a feed and Ron, I think it's safe to say that if you are speaking to uh, maybe a new keeper or uh, somebody that doesn't have a dedicated room that can't be heated into the high 70s, low 80s, that if you're keeping a green tree at you know uh, normal room temperatures, that it it would probably behoove them to supply. Yeah, some you definitely would need supplemental heat at that point. I mean, there's no. Okay. They they're not they don't like being cold, <laughs> like you know. Human room temperatures, yeah. they don't like being that cold for prolonged periods. So, yeah, if you're going if you're gonna keep them in an unheated or unthermostatically controlled room dedicated to snake temperatures, then yes, you unequivocally would need to provide them. You know, I guess unless you lived in South Florida or something maybe, but <laughs> around right. here you most of the country. Should be advised. Okay. So but I also think most people give them too big of a heat. Uh, I think heat panels are great choices for heat, but for a lot of snakes. But I, I've have I've used them for years in the past, and I didn't like. I don't know. I didn't like how they worked with green python. It, what do you know? The heat panels. panels. What was that? What What are your room temps, Ryan? Uh, they run uh, for. I guess six months out of the year, they're pretty much a standard, you know, 79 to 81 degrees. Um, the three months that I cycle, the room temperature gets down to the low 70s and back to 82 during the day. And then about two or three months in the summertime, the room will get as hot as 87 during the day and back down to 79 at night. So, um, Interesting. They get a four, and, and, four seasons here. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Do you uh, do you offer females supplemental heat, or you just let them go with the room? Only when as well? they're only after they ovulate. Po- Post ovulation. Okay. Do you yeah, manipulate so your room uh, as well? What was that? Do you man- manipulate your room lighting? Uh, I do. I don't have cage lights right now. I have them in uh, ZooMed glass tanks sitting on top of all my right. racks. And uh, so the they get a lot of ambient light and uh, in the I go twelve twelve for twelve on twelve off all the season except during the cycling period I go to uh, fourteen ten daytime for ten hours and nighttime for fourteen hours but just for three months okay. How about so, uh, I kind of sidetracked. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, buddy. I kind of sidetracked what you were saying about the heat panel. Yeah, um, that's a great yeah, conversation. I, I noticed yeah. the one when I kept them with heat panels. Um, I noticed with mine, anyways. Uh, I called it panel spine, like on the top of their head and the first few inches down their neck. It was almost like the scales would kind of curl in a little bit. From the radiate, you know, radiant heat, and this was, and I had the heat panels that were six, what six inches by twelve, the Pro Products one, 
And I had right. the snakes in 30-inch by 2-foot by 2-foot cages, so they weren't, you know, it wasn't all panel. Um, and it still just seemed like it, I don't know, it kind of just dried out their back of their head and neck area. And uh, that was one of the first things I noticed after I had my panels off for a while was that the uh, scales flattened back out and didn't appear kind of crunchy, so... I thought, well, that's another good <laughs> good sign. So, Ryan, yeah, is there right, something? Uh, is there an is there an additional heat element that if somebody is not able to keep a heated room, uh, do you think there's a a way to heat the chondro, whether it's um, you know juvenile uh, or adult chondro? Is there a different way that you think might be better than heat panels? Uh, if it was a juvenile, I would uh, use a rack system or a you know a single tub, kind of like a rack setup with uh, probably just under tank, um, you know heat heat tape or heat pad of some sort, thermostatically controlled. Okay. Um, okay. On an adult, I I tend to like the um or the the ceramic heat emitters. I know they're radiant heat, just like a heat panel, but for some reason. I think it's just the the heated surface is so much smaller. I mean, uh, I use 30-watt huh. ones in my room when the females become gravid, um, and I don't I don't put them on a thermostat. I just turn them on. Um, and uh, most of the time, I've only seen one female actively bask doing it this way, but uh, so I don't even really know what exactly the basking temperatures could potentially be because I... The females don't seem to care, so I haven't tempted on them to figure it out. But yeah, if I was interesting, um, if I was doing it in a cool room, um, you know, I'd probably, I'd probably just experiment. Instead of using a thermostat, I would probably just experiment with different uh, ceramic sizes to get the gradient that I wanted, instead of relying on a thermostat. So. Nice. Because nice. the thermostat, you know, they only take the temperature right there. And so um, I, most of the time you put the temperature probe right below the heat element. And if you're trying to heat up a, a cage in a relatively cool space, I would rather have a basking spot that was a little higher to try to get my ambience up. Because um, I, I kind of chalk up green python cages as usable square feet. And I think based on the pictures I've seen on the internet, I think most people's cages, they keep them in far bigger cages than I do, but I don't think they have any more usable square inches than I do because so much of their cage at sub-optimal temperatures, albeit too hot or too cold, that it limits where their snakes want to be. And uh, mm. whereas in my situation, they, they can sit anywhere they want because it's pretty much all the same temperature, so... Yeah, very, very, very interesting. That's uh, just from my own personal um, experience in my room. I would agree that 95% of the time my animals are away from their heat, and I've got radiant heat panels in, in all of my adult cages that they're turned down very low, but I, they're in there. The only time I've ever seen any animal consistently under that radiant heat panel is a female that's ovulated. That's it. Yeah. That's yeah. I mean, you know, the, I guess for me, um, back back in the day before, um, 
I, I mean, I did stuff like everybody else other than when I first did it. Um, once I started paying more attention to what other people were doing, I started I started trying to imitate what those people were doing. And, and for me, I, it, I just, I imitated what they were doing and I was starting to get the same results. Before, when I kept them in fish tanks with little heat emitters and I fed them mice and I just, I didn't really, I didn't think of them as anything different than any other python I'd ever had experience with. Um, I didn't have, I virtually had no issues. As soon as I started, <laughs> you know, reading stuff and, oh, they're so special and they're so different, um, I started treating them that way and then I started getting the same issues um, everybody else was having as far as uh, lethargic behavior, um, tail hanging, I had a lot of tail hang. you know, I was feeding rats, had a lot of tail hanging, and it wasn't until um, I was just kind of, I started to think, by this time I'd had a lot more pythons than the Wilson papers came out, which were very, extremely eye-opening for me, um, at least the way I interpreted them, and uh, so I fundamentally kind of changed what I was doing and saw nothing but good results, and it basically started with uh, I finally just thought, well, these are just pythons. They, yeah, they're a green python, and that makes them, you know, extra cool, I guess, for guys that like green snakes that sit on sticks. But they're still just a python, and I know we all want them to be extra special. And <laughs> but basically, they boil down to they're just a python, not unlike a lot of other pythons. And uh, right. So once I say, once take, I came take to that off, conclusion, take them off that python pedestal, huh? Yeah, I mean, you know, they're my favorite species, so it's not, it's not, you know, I definitely, I definitely covet them like everybody else, I guess. But husbandry-wise, I, I think, I don't know if it's, and this might be wrong, a bad statement to say, but a lot of the green python keepers don't seem to keep anything but green pythons, and I think they, they kind of get caught up in this this whole whirlwind of how special green pythons are and how different and unique they are. And I'm not saying they're not unique and somewhat different, but at the end of the day, they are just, you know, a small green python that sits on a stick. And yeah. when you stop treating them differently, you'll actually find that they, uh, you know, they're not that unlike other pythons. And so the Wilson papers, uh, for me, were eye-opening as far as you know, the green pythons appear to be, you know, a closed canopy rainforest species. And to me, that means they don't bask. You know, the basking opportunities are so limited in a closed canopy rainforest. Um, so they're pretty much subjected to whatever ambient temperatures. So that was my first clue, like, maybe I'm onto something, you know, doing away with the basking spot. And uh, But the biggest thing was just the pa the papers revealed how little they actually eat um, and how much mm -hmm. they move. And yep. I just thought, man, you know, all of these guys are, you know, the bigger they got, the lazier they got, the more tail hanging they did. And, you know, you just think, well, this this, this isn't right, you know. Um, so I ended up, I decided I took a I took a male that I'd had for years and he was getting pretty good size. Um I didn't weigh a lot of stuff back then and he was probably small compared to 
you know, some of the guys I've seen how big they grow stuff. But to me, he was he was big and he was getting up there in age. And so I thought, well, I'm going to do an experiment, and I'm going to just I will I'm not I'm going to refuse to feed him until he shows me that he's really hungry. And by really hungry, I mean he's not just going to be sitting there with his head looking at the ground, but he's going to actively go look for food. Because when I read those Wilson's papers, it it told me that they go looking, you know, for food every night, get in position to try to find food. They're not active hunters as far as go chase something down, but they they move to the ground and then they stare at the ground all night. Um, Where we don't have that keeping them in a box, we don't have that option. Um, But I thought, well, if I don't feed him, eventually if he gets hungry enough, then he's going to want to try to reposition himself to a new place to find food. So that was my my weird thoughts to myself, and so I just didn't feed him. Um, And I think it took, I want to say it was 60-something days, 60-something, 65 days or something before he um, would actively cruise around at night, not just, like, you know, drop his head and stare at the ground. And uh, so I was like, okay, I'm going to make him do this for a few nights in a row, and then I'm going to feed him. So he, after, you know, two months or whatever, he started cruising around. So then I offered him food. He ate it, and then he was back to his normal. He wasn't going to move. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to see how I'm going to see how long this lasts. And um, I started picking up on uh, if you fed them big meals, they just sat longer. If you fed them small meals, they would, you know, they would move around that much quicker. Um, and so I, I don't believe that rats necessarily are a bad meal. Um, they the only I guess for me rats are. If, the size of rat you would have to feed a green tree python, at least as small as I try to keep them, is an immature rat. It's a, you know, it's not even weaned usually. Um, where green pythons eat adult prey in the wild, they're not nest raiders. Um, so I just, I thought, well, I'd rather have the fully mature skeleton, smaller weight of a mouse, and that was mm-hmm. that was how I ended up started feeding mice. It wasn't. It wasn't because I think rats are a terrible meal. It's just, I think that's a, it's a, it's more of a size thing than anything. But right. So I started right. playing around with, you know, what you feed them, how often you feed them, and I discovered that I could actually feed him about every five days um, if I fed him insultingly small meals. He would sit for two days, he would cruise for three days, and then he would eat. He would sit for two days, he would cruise for three days, and then he would eat. But you literally had to feed him like a you know, a, a large hopper to a small fuzzy mouse. If you fed him something bigger, he would just sit that much longer. Um, mm. And so then I pretty well adopted the the approach where I just, I will not feed them unless they um, show me how hungry they are. Um, now what about, uh, Ryan, what about your females? Let's say you've got a, a female that you're anticipating uh, breeding, the upcoming breeding season, adult female. Uh, you follow those same that same guideline? Uh, I'll cheat after, during the cool-down period. I, uh, um, I'll keep them cool, or I'll, I'll do the typical, the way I do it, and then during the cycling period, I will feed them more. I do shrink the meal size, 
and I feed them more often. And I believe, I really believe in food cycling. I think that it's a important aspect to most python mm-hmm. reproduction, or it can be a uh-huh. nice trigger. Uh, an increase of prey, you know, means it's time to breed. Uh, huh. So I just I shrink the size of the prey and I just feed them more often. Uh, but usually the difference during the breeding season is you're sticking males in there, and then the males make the females move around. Uh, thus, their bowel movements, you know, are are more often. So you can kind of get away with things, I guess. Um, but my females typically only breed every other to every third year since I've been doing this, which seems oh, to be okay. somewhat in line with what probably happens in the wild, I guess. I don't know. Very uh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's read my I, animals, I, know I guess. I know you've listened to some of what uh, Daniel Natush has, has talked about as far as, you know, what, uh, green trees do in the wild in their in their habitat, and that it's certainly more online of how you you keep your animals. Uh, you know the, the the feeding frequency, the amount of movement, and uh, the reproduction in the wild is it was eye opening when you listen to him talk. Yeah, I mean it's still. I, I mean people are always accusing me of oh you you know you're trying to keep them like the wild, but the, but you can't reproduce a rainforest. And I wholeheartedly agree. I'm not trying to keep them like they live in the wild as far as, I mean, it's just too complex. You couldn't possibly replicate that, you know, in a capture situation right. very easily. Um, and so I guess in my uh, in my adjustments to how I keep things now, uh, I've pretty much, I started off like having problems in, not big problems, with the tail hanging and stuff like that. And I just thought, well, what can I take? Because it seemed like I was doing a lot of extra things for green tree pythons that I wasn't doing for other snakes that I was keeping. And I just thought, well, this is ridiculous. This is not, you know, this doesn't make any sense, this this python. So I started started doing, I would take away something and see what would happen. And I pretty much realized you could take away a lot of things and nothing bad happened. In fact, I noticed nothing but good things, so that uh, I guess is how I got to where I am now. But the Wilson papers were, you know, the single biggest influencing discovery, so to speak, of my keeping. And I just uh, inter- will quickly interject. The Wilson papers, you can find those on uh, gtpkeeper dot com under the informative and research article page. If you scroll down, it's a Wilson paper. It's a PDF download, so you have to download it. But um, his research is there, so you can go over there and check it out if you're interested in what Ryan is. What what yeah, Ryan read and them, how it changes. And then part, one of them was yeah. published in the book. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah, the book Biology Boas and I don't know. Biology of Boas and Pythons. There's a big book. I don't know. It was done a few, quite a few years ago. Um, I think one of his one paper was in that book, um, and then uh, yeah, and then the PDFs. So look into it. It's, right. uh, it changed my opinion anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, de- definitely very interesting and. 
uh, one of the things I know that I'd take out of that is how active they, the males were, how far they roamed. Um, definitely interesting. He did check uh, with some of the, the chondras that he had collected and then released, and then they had essentially just, you know, took some time and monitored the animals' movements, and males had a very yeah. large range they moved through. Yeah, the males, and that definitely, I mean, the males do move a lot more, um, even in captivity, than the females, in my experience. Even trying to, you know, only make a move when they're hungry, <laughs> you definitely, uh, right. it's harder to do with the females. They still, they still want to uh, just sit most of the time, but... Yeah, you can. Uh, yeah. You know, and the other thing I don't know, I noticed that when I would handle um, a green tree python, it almost always, if you handled it for any length of time, it almost always took a dump. And so I just started. Right. I pretty much, quote, you know, started realizing that the lack of movement is probably the single biggest downfall of the species in captivity. And you don't have to have a huge cage to get the movement. They'll they'll move in a in a snake bag, you know, more than they will in their own cage. Um, so you have to, you got, I always say, you have to give them a reason to move. They're uh, they're too comfortable, I guess. <laughs> so you just have to give them something to move for. And, uh, I think you could probably, if you still wanted to feed a lot and feed big meals, you could probably take a cage from the. Uh, Emerald tree boa keepers and build yourself like a rain chamber or something to put them in. It would probably that would probably be a good uh, husbandry practice for green tree python people to adopt as well. So, some of us have. I mean, I mean, some green tree keepers have. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they do. Like I said, I haven't. Uh, I haven't followed what everybody's doing, but, but uh, <laughs> I think anything you can do that makes them move around, even just handling them or anything like that, putting them in a different cage. It's amazing how they almost always defecate when you do anything to them. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, yep. You, know, you start realizing in the wild, like, they can't be moving around full of crap, you know, literally, I guess, full of crap. And right. So, I think... You the know, other a lot thing of the I found tail- is uh, if you invite somebody over, so always yeah. when they go yeah. to the bathroom right they before, they, before they show up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Clean the cage Absolutely. and they all leave a present. Yep. Absolutely. Heck yeah. Yeah, no, they're uh, they're a great species, but I guess not. Got to knock a little of the mystique off them, I guess, a little bit. Right. Now, Ryan, I'm assuming that you aren't, uh, you don't own a scale to weigh your snakes with. I own a scale. I do. I just. Okay. Uh, I guess at this point, I pretty much like you can you can look at a green tree and tell if it's an adult or not. Uh, it's right. Uh, but I have weighed some stuff. The uh, what was it? The 2010 root females that I'm raising. I weighed those. I don't know six months ago, and they were 380 grams or something like that. Wow. So okay. They're still small. But they, you know, they don't have a crease on them. They're laterally compressed like they should be, and have big heads for their body size. So I think it's probably the way. Probably the five-year plan is the way to raise them. So, you know, shoot mm-hmm. for 550 to 700 grams in five years. 
Um, I don't even. I guess mine probably won't even make 500 grams in five years. But we'll see. I've I've seen him breed it under. Uh, I've that a friend of mine, Mark. His female, I think, was 400 grams and laid nine eggs. Wow. Well, that's be huge. She was like six years old though, but she wasn't like a tiny. You know, she was just. A self-regulating snake never got huge, but hmm. uh, it makes sense. Green trees, and I guess lucky for me, I do keep other species, and so I had bred Aunt Teresa quite a few times, and they lay the egg that's exactly the same size as a green tree type one, and most of those will breed, you know, 250 to 400 grams. So I just thought, well, right. I figured, well, green tree pythons do need to be bigger because there's, you know, there's a longer snake. So even if you go by they're the same size around, they would probably be a foot longer just based on their morphology. And so I always thought, based on what an adult female children's or spotted python looks like, the, a green tree python should be about that big around. So. Right. Yep. I didn't have a scale back then. <laughs> and I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> I would have just wrecked. Right. Yeah, I remember um, I never owned a scale until I bought some chondros. And I didn't really understand, you know, what, why, you know, why does everybody weigh their snakes? Um, I mean, I did it and uh, I collected all this data and did nothing with it. And eventually I was just like, you know, this is nonsense. If, you know, if I can't look at an animal and say that, you know, it's, it's ready to breed, or if it's an adult, or if it's at least growing, then, you know, um, I'm not much of a snake keeper, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it's, That's a, uh, it's, I a, think it's a good point. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a good tool if you're interested in, in exactly what's going on, but I wouldn't let, I guess I wouldn't let other people's data dictate what you're doing. And that's, I think when most people have a scale, what they're using it for is, well, this person told me it needs to be this big, and so they're feeding the crap out of their snake till it gets that big because that's what that person told them. And, right. Uh, I don't think that, you know, what I use a scale for is just when I have a reproductive event, I just weigh weigh the mother, weigh the eggs, you know, weigh the father, write it all down, and then the scale sits there until <laughs> the next time. <laughs> Ryan, I think you'll agree. Ryan, I think you'll agree. Uh, you know, the only time I really hear uh, the weight issue is, you know, a lot of ball python people will talk about, you know, the, uh, this snake is 500 grams, 700 grams, 1500 grams. I've never, I've, I've bred carpets for a long time. I've never weighed a carpet python ever. And I think the green yeah. tree it goes back to the same thing. You can just tell. You just you know, you look at it. Yeah, and you can totally tell. They, you know, they change. They go from yeah, they change. A snake that's constantly active and and eating and growing at a rate that's you know higher, and you'll just notice that that stops. They sit more. They don't. You know, you'll notice that. Wow, they they you gave them the same meal, but this time they didn't crap or move for two weeks. Where you know, it was. A couple. It was a week last time. They just they start acting different, and I think uh, we'd be all better served to just pay attention to those things and get caught up to what a scale tells us. Yeah, exactly. 
Agreed. I know we had. Uh, so um, I, I know we had uh, one of the things we wanted to talk to him, uh, buddy, about as well as is neonates about how um, yes uh, how he transitions, what his experience, uh, Ryan, your experience has been with uh, babies, hatchlings, uh, getting getting them to eat, getting them established. <coughs> uh, yeah, as long as they're not Kofi Owl babies, they're uh, they're pretty easy. <laughs> you don't, you don't want to talk what to... about those. Oh man, that's the biggest nightmare ever. I guess I don't know. At least my experience really? with them. Um, the first chondros I bred, you know, were all sarong, uh, you know, mainland type azuria. Um, I didn't think the babies were challenging to get started, mainly because I just didn't have any experience. Um, so I thought they were hard. I guess after now, I I pretty much kind of have a you know, way I do it and it doesn't seem to be hard anymore and and I think part of the the difference is, is that you just you don't stress um after producing quite a few clutches. I mean there's a lot of guys spread a lot more than me so I'm not I don't wanna act like I've had millions of them. But uh you know, after a decade plus of fairly consistent clutches, uh I just don't freak out. I don't the babies don't bother me, they don't scare me I don't uh I don't worry if they don't eat the first time I try and so it's just I think it's a mindset more than it is actually the snakes um being hard. They they tend to eat when they're ready to eat, uh you know, as long as you can um you know, get them excited and biting at the prey at them, eventually they're they're gonna eat. And uh I think the biggest thing is just to not freak out about it if they don't. And then there's also just a certain amount of animals you just have to realize aren't meant for captivity. They're not they're not designed to eat pinky mice. They would never eat a pinky mouse in the wild. They're looking for lizards and certain snakes just aren't destined to survive, I guess. And so I don't uh if I've got a whole clutch and most of the babies are eating and there's a straggler that just doesn't seem to thrive, I don't I guess I don't put in a huge effort to make it survive because I tend to think that they're going to pass on those bad feeding behaviors um, to their mm-hmm. their own offspring. Um, right. you, I mean, you can you can go through extraordinary measures to save a captive baby snake that is otherwise, you know, not wanting to adapt to how we do things in captivity. And overall, I, I think you're just contributing to a weaker captive snake, I stress the captive portion because it's not that the snake is bad, it's just we are doing everything the snake doesn't want and certain ones adapt to the indignities of captivity and others don't. Uh, so for me personally, I just, at a certain point, if most of the clutch is doing well and one baby doesn't want to live, well, that's life. So I don't, uh, yeah. I don't try too hard with those ones. So I uh, just posted a pickup on our uh, Facebook page, GTP Keeper Radio, and I believe it's the Kofi Owl. She's got an egg sticking out. Is that is, was were they hard to establish, Ryan? Is the neonates? Um, I the I had those babies, and um, I ended up hatching. Well, I didn't hatch very many. I I I was experimenting with incubation with all things those, but uh, I did. I ended up hatching three and. Um, they were just, they were crazy. I don't know how else to put it. They, 
they would sit on their perch, and the second you would mess with them, they would just fling themselves off the perch and just strike wildly. And you would think that would make them easy to get started, but it actually proved to be exactly the opposite. They were they were too easily excited, and you know, like I said, my my sample size was three, so I'm sure right. uh, you know other uh, other keepers would have more experience than me with Tofios, but uh, right. the three I had were all extremely jumpy. Um, you know, the and like I said, you would think it was like, oh, they're, they're jumpy and bitey, and you would think that would be great, but they were so jumpy and bitey that they would never hold on to anything. They wouldn't even hold on to their perch. So it's just... Wow. It's uh, proved to be Chuck quite Vogel a challenge does. tonight. Yeah, Chuck would yeah. probably be able to expand on that if that's his experience way further than me. But in my limited experience, uh, I was able to get one established, but the other two, right. just, you know, I'd, force, I'd put tails in their mouth for a while, but after it was just right. like, well, these things are just not going to be good. So I didn't, right. I didn't try that hard. Uh, if I recall... But, uh, the conversation I had with Chuck, he said that uh, the vast majority of his babies, he has actually a cyst feed of the Kofi. Yeah, well, it does. It also makes sense. I mean, you're breeding, you're breeding, you know, wild caught, my adults wild are wild caught, right. So they've, you know, they never, there's no generations in captivity where they had to start eating pinkies. And um, with other snakes, you know, gray band and king snakes, even carpet pythons, when you breed, you know, fresh out of the wild, that first generation, there's just a lot of, you know, there. it's really fixed in their um, interest to eat lizards. And so it's it's hard mm-hmm. to get them to want to eat pinkies, whereas a lot of these captive lineages of condors have been around for so long that, you know, you have three, four, five, six generations that have all had to start on pinkies. Um, right. So it definitely, when you're breeding... Um, you know, early generations are wild caught. Those babies appear to be slightly more challenging. So. That's an excellent point, Ryan. I think it was you that uh, said maybe on one of your prior shows that it used to be thought that ball pythons were a very difficult species to breed and get babies going. They yeah. were. They. I remember when I first had my first ball python. Everything I'd ever read was they're one of the most challenging species of python to breed in captivity. I know we all laugh yeah. at that today, but yeah. back then, yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> when you try to breed right. those wild caught adults, it's uh, yeah, yep, absolutely, and it uh, yeah, it does, and it just completely makes sense that uh, you know we're seeing a different day in green trees now with the. The majority of the animals available and bred in the United States now were captive bred babies, and uh, it just makes sense that they're getting uh, easier is not the word, but uh, certainly more manageable to to keep, breed, and get babies established, hopefully. Well, I mean, no, I mean, I actually think easier is probably the word because uh, every generation where the babies had to start on pinkies and live a captive lifestyle is that you know, much further away from, I mean, they're basically evolving in our, you know, in our collections to do what we want them to do, not what they were originally designed to do. And so every generation makes them that much easier than the next. 
It, uh, I think I was talking to Dave Barker one time when I first started breeding pythons, and he was telling me about breeding gray band and king snakes, which are notoriously, you know, hard to get started as babies. And, right. Um, he was telling me if you take the animals that, if you don't worry about what they look like and you just breed them based on if they eat pinkies well, he said, like, the first generation, you know, you'd have, like, less than 10% that readily started on pinkies. Well, if you took those 10% that readily started on pinkies and bred them to each other, it was like, ooh, 40, 50% would start eating pinkies readily. And if you took those babies mm-hmm. and raised them, you know, you every generation it got more easier and easier to get them to readily tank pinkies than, you know, than if you breed them for looks, uh, you know, you could get, you're breeding bad feeders to bad feeders potentially and and not bad feeders like there's something wrong with the species but bad feeders they just don't want to eat what we want to give them and I think green pythons are you know fit in that mold yeah I I agree I think and sometimes you know I went back and forth you know debating you know essentially just with myself about you know the whole assist feeding um, uh, you know topic you know, is it good or or is it bad? Are you, are you helping, you know, the captive animal in the long run, or or is it going to be a detriment? And I know, um, you know, at least listening to a lot of the the other radio interviews, uh, you know, there's a lot of other species out there where people just, you know, that's just the accepted norm for those babies is that you're just going to have to, you know, tough it out and assist feed and. And it's kind of changed my my outlook a little bit on it because I was at a point for me I was like you know if the, if the if I have a baby it's just not going to eat on its own that's just the way it's going to be and then I'm just going to you know let let nature take its course if it doesn't finally figure it out and then I've you know kind of changed that a little bit where I'm like okay well you know it's like just talking listen to some of the blackhead breeders where they pretty much just don't even try to to feed babies initially they just go right to to assist feeding, to, to get them going. Um, of course, you know, you're talking about blackheads, a much bigger baby than a condor. But um, so I've kind of changed my outlook a little bit on that. Whereas, you know, I'll go on to maybe try to do a, a assist feed a mouse tail or two to see if it'll jump start an animal, as opposed to my previous opinion of let's just let it, you know, let's just let yeah, it ride and no, see what happens. For sure, I don't. I'm not. You know, I don't want to make it sound like I don't do any of those things either. It's, it's just uh, I kind of look at each clutch as its own little experiment, and uh, if if I have a clutch and all the babies are kind of difficult, I'll assist feed them. Um, but you know, after a certain point, if most of the babies are doing well and there's one or two stragglers, but uh, I won't assist feed them indefinitely. I guess is my is my right. rule of thumb, and I'll use the whole yeah. clutch as my baseline. I guess is if you know. If eight out of ten are eating readily and only had to be assisted a few times, you know I'm not gonna. I'm just not gonna keep assist assist feeding one forever. So, uh, but I definitely will assist feed them and breed. You know, like I said, breeding other species. I mean, you're. I don't know how you'd get a pygmy python established if you didn't assist feed it, because they're just obligate lizard eaters. So, they, I. I don't even know if I've heard of anybody getting one to just eat a pinky right off the bat. I, I'm sure that's happened, but it's extremely rare. 
are the pygmy python babies big enough to take down a whole pinky, or do they have to start with pink parts? Uh, they can eat a whole pinky. I, I hear all the time that they can't. They can. They just don't want to. They're literally okay. four grams, three and a half to four grams in the hatch. So wow. Like, you know, a third the size of a green tree <laughs> baby. Wow. But, yeah, they're tiny. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I like I like pygmies. I'm gonna add some sometime <laughs> in the future. Oh yeah, that's my Don't second favorite. Don't try to pin me down to a date. <laughs> really? I okay. guess my third yep. favorite. So I guess you'd have to go Beardus, Lazurius, and Persephone. Okay. Interesting. Very nice. Very nice. So you said you were exper you were experimenting with your incubation techniques. So are do you still experiment, or have you? Have you picked a method that you prefer? No, I'm 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 pretty well fixed to the I do the no substrate. Um you know, I've done it many different ways, but I think that year I was experimenting with uh kind of a hybrid between no substrate, um like I set up I had a no substrate set up but I put the eggs um in a shallow container was really dry or not really dry but um you know what would be considered dry vermiculite um okay. just so they wouldn't roll around cuz i didn't like uh the eggs weren't adhered together very well um and uh i just didn't want them rolling around so i thought if i could come up with a happy medium between the straight no substrate method and uh, a combination of the two, um, but I think I just mixed the vermiculite. Two, I should have put more. I should have put more water in the vermiculite because I think the vermiculite ended up uh, wicking moisture out of the eggs. So right, the eggs were pretty. They were pretty, pretty dry and pretty. Uh, um, a lot of all all eleven eggs went the distance, um, but I noticed that the. Uh, uh, well, I ended up tipping the eggs because um, I noticed I saw little slits on the eggs, but they weren't slit all the way through. Uh, the right. eggs were just really dry and brittle, and so uh, when I opened them up, the three were still alive, but the others had uh, perished. So nothing like uh, experience, good or bad, to teach you a few things. <laughs> <laughs> you aren't kidding. <laughs> Lord knows I've wrecked up. Rex, a few green python clutches trying uh, trying things or taking advice from, I guess, mainstream green python keepers. Have you ever uh, maternally incubated a green tree python clutch? Uh, I tried with my last clutch with the Aroos, um, and I didn't. I, I, I guess I shouldn't have tried because I didn't think. She didn't. The clutch was kind of. I knew how the clutch was all adhered together, and it wasn't in a very good ball. Um, but she was trying. But I was like, okay, I really wanted to experience it. So, against my own uh, my own internal struggle and talking to Rico at the time, uh, rest is full. Uh, you know, he was like, pull them, pull them, and I'm like, but I really want to see the baby sticking out of the mom's coil. And she was trying so hard, I just thought, well, I'll give her a shout. Right. I noticed uh, a couple weeks later that uh, a couple of the eggs had gone bad and had wrecked most of the clutch, but I ended up saving uh, four of the babies. So. 
Okay. Nice save. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I guess I. I don't know, but I've been told that if you start off maternal, it's really hard to hatch them going artificial at that point. But I didn't. Huh. Uh, the. Uh, I think there was fourteen eggs, thirteen eggs, something like that, and. I think by the time I discovered there was an issue, uh, they were like brown and wet, I think like six or eight of them. And then some of the eggs that were in contact with those eggs uh, ended up going bad. I did hatch one egg that was in contact with those other eggs, but it took a lot of super glue and soap powder to get it there. But uh, so, yeah, I I feel pretty fortunate to have hatched the... I hatched five, but uh, one baby just didn't have what it took to survive. So four of them are still at my house. So I guess I didn't do too bad. I think I had, I think I put eight in the incubator after, and I think three of those have been in contact with bad eggs. So if memory serves me, two of them kicked off right away. But Mm -hmm. I ended up getting five, so... Right. I don't know. I okay. want to do maternal again, so it's. Uh, I'm just gonna have to have a good. I'll have to have a good feeling about it before I try it again. So. Okay. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. Like you can uh, send me photos, I, and I can live vicariously through you. <laughs> I know. Yeah, me just, too. I, I, I've, I've just become increasingly interested in just witnessing. And it was really cool to watch her, the two, I think she had them for two or three weeks, and I temped under her head, and it was pretty interesting to see the temperature differences and on her head, and uh, one every now and then when I could see an egg, so she definitely, she. I mean, they're fully capable of it, so. Right. It, uh, and I, I don't think I would use a bucket. I used a two-and-a-half-gallon bucket again. I think I would use. Uh, a wood nest box because I think what happened with me is there was just, um, you know, maybe she, you know, crapped a little bit or oozed something out of the cloaca while she was incubating them. And since it's not uh, dirt or there was nothing, she hates, uh, this female does not like um, any substrate in her nest chamber. And so it was just her in a bucket. And uh, so there was nothing to absorb any kind of moisture, and I think that's ultimately what got me. Yep, could be. Definitely could be. Hmm. Okay. So then, so normally you just do the uh, no substrate when you artificially incubate. Yeah. When I first started doing it, I did it in, you know, uh, vermiculite, just like everything else, and I did pretty good at that. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. The best success I had was uh, putting them on strawberry containers, those little really fine plastic deals inside of a tub with water on the floor. Those were probably the best right. statistical, you know, hatch rates I had. Um, but uh, then I tried, like I said, then I tried the hybrid method several times with, you know, some substrate. Because I just, I, when the clutch isn't very well adhered to each other, I don't like how they just roll around when I'm checking on right. them. So I thought, well, if I can get away with using substrate to kind of hold them in place, that's all. But, yeah, so now I the last clutch I had, I used one of those SIM containers, and uh, it's, it, seemed to, it seemed to do good. So okay. I guess I'll try that 
with the next clutch. Do you uh, monitor? Do you so? Do you have your incubator run off the main chamber temps, or do you have the the thermostat probe in with the eggs themselves? Uh, I have a like a small room walk-in closet kind of deal for an incubator, and so I okay. Just, the uh, temperature is controlled for the room, so I don't okay. I don't monitor what it is inside the the chamber. Box, okay. Cool, good deal. I just put them. I put them on the lowest lowest shelf. You know, if I can get them under eighty eight, I I definitely think uh, I probably should set up an actual incubator so I can experiment more. But I think I could just hatch out too quick. Most most species incubate for closer to sixty days than fifty days, and uh, so I think they're probably probably shouldn't put them. You know, over eighty eight. I think you'd probably have better luck. You know, somewhere between like eighty six nine and eighty seven five would probably be just from temp gun and the female. Seem like the eggs were always like eighty seven and a half. Why she had them? So, and I think that would probably make your incubation time go a couple days longer, which would be good. I think that's probably the standard, wouldn't you say, buddy? uh, Artificial incubation in the Condor community, if you ask most people, they'd say the 80, 87.5. That's yep. that's kind of, I think so. Well, most, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's, yeah, I guess I hadn't paid attention to what everybody was doing. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, think I took that's, most that's, of mine over the years at 88.5. So probably dropping that other degree would help. Yeah. I used, you know, doing other pythons, I kept my incubator like at 80, 88.5 or 89. Yeah, I usually no. have mine set. Well, right now I'm just using Renko thermostat, or not Renko, okay. but Johnson's A419s on the room. And right. uh, I think the top shelf is like 89 degrees. Um, the bottom shelf, I think, is around 87. So I could probably just put them on the bottom shelf and not have any problem. And let them roll. Yeah. And the other thing awesome. I noticed when she was cooking the eggs is they were... They weren't a constant temperature. We all strive for a constant temperature, but that uh, definitely was not the case with the female. Even though the room was fairly consistently temperature, there was a little bit of a swing. Um, Oh, yeah. So I don't think... I I think we probably stress about all these findings. I see all these, you know, you got to have this lab-grade, you know, glass mercury thermometer to get everything just <laughs> so. And, and I just, I don't know, man. It's like these things wouldn't live in the wild if it was so precise. So I think we that's, just... That's one we, of the... Ryan, that's that, that's one of the beauties about, you know, if you look at your... So many of your chondro keepers, they're, they just... And I say they, I mean me. We just were that ADD... Uh, obsessive compulsive personality type where half the fun of all of this is is trying to think that we you know by controlling micro uh degrees and temperature that we're actually making a difference yeah well and you know i guess my salvation is that i keep so many other species that i don't uh <laughs> i can obsess and do my add things on 
you know, towards other things, and, it, and I, I don't, you know, I, I feed tons of snakes, so I, I don't have to, I've always said that I think um, with green pythons especially, you have a, you have a, it's a keeper issue, the feeding, and it's because, uh, you know, you buy this expensive snake, and it just sits there on a stick, and you can't tell if it's happy or if it's sad or what, and so when you feed it, it's the only time for a keeper that the snake says, I'm happy in this moment. I'm so happy that I'm willing to right. eat. And uh, so I think as keepers, um, especially if you have a small collection and you only keep green pythons, it almost forces you to feed more often because you're you're looking for that next reassurance that you're doing things right. And uh, Agreed. I think, I think that's the biggest contributor to overfeeding um you know, green pythons in captivity. It's not a, not the snake's deal. It's the keeper just wants that reassurance. And so. Right. I agree. I, I think that uh, <laughs> there's this, you know, thinking back to my first chondro, and, you know, you really, you know, you just, you know, you don't, when you finally have that experience yourself, you're, you know, you're living it yourself, you're like, wow, this is so cool, and you're excited. And then all of a sudden you realize, you know, these kind of these snakes, they're really pretty, but you know, they don't do much. And yeah, so the no, way you interact right. with them is, is to feed them. You know, yep. while I interact with them is to feed them, or I'll, you know, I'm bored and I want to go, you know, interact with my chondro. I'll go miss it eight times a day. Exactly. No, that's. Uh, I think that plays a big part in it. And uh, and yeah. I think a lot of people feel like they can't handle them. And uh, they actually, I mean, are remarkably, most of them, in my experience, have been fairly tractable and easy to work with. Uh, not always the easy thing to get them off their stick, but once you do, short of a temperamental bioc or something, they they usually calm down and explore. And really, if you had to interact with your snake a lot, I would say getting them to move around and is probably you know, far more important and healthier for them than offering another meal. <laughs> yep. I you can, you can kill I'm, them with kindness. Yes. <laughs> yes, you can. You know, That's I a great point. Old, I love to hear. The older school, say, you know, hands-on yeah, ahead, keeper. Buddy. Come from that old oh, school, like hands-on keeping. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, for me, it's like, you know, what's going on with my snake? I take it out and I handle it. And, you know, it's just, it's such a shame that the general consensus is that this species is a hands-off species. And I, up to a certain point, I do agree, um, until they maybe hit a certain age. Um, but, you know, that, that for me personally, that's part of the joy of keeping these animals is to be able to take them out, you know, let them crawl around a little bit while you're holding them, looking at them, enjoying them in different ways. And, you know, if I, if I couldn't have my kids, my two sons, um, there with me doing the same thing, I, you know, the enjoyment wouldn't be as great for me. So oh, you know, yeah, I get no, a lot of enjoyment in that. So That's a good point. And I, I'm always surprised. I mean, I don't have a ton of people. There's not a huge reptile community around here, and I'm somewhat of a hermit as far as letting people come over. But when I do, I'm like, oh, you want to hold a green sheep python? And they're like, oh, I didn't think you could, you know. And it's like, what? They're just a, <laughs> it's just a green python on a stick. So, right. But uh, most of them, I mean, I've had a few that were, you know, you wouldn't want to freehand them. 
unless you knew what you were doing. Even most right. of the temperamental ones, once you get them out, there's a way to work with them if you know what you're doing. Agreed. I love to hear you guys, uh, you know, talking about handling green trees because that was one of the big misconceptions that I had, and I think it's still very prevalent in the reptile community in general that they are an animal that is um, uh, high husbandry uh, level expert, uh, you know, snake keeping, reptile keeping skills, and that they can't be handled. And it took me 10 years to break through that uh, stigma, and I will not keep a, a species of of snakes that I can't occasionally uh, handle. I mean, I have, uh, you know, not that I want to be out holding the green trees uh, every minute of every day, but I want to be able to, you know, if I want to reach in there and, and pick it out and handle it, you know, I want to I want to be able to do that with anything that I keep. So it's good to hear you guys continue to reinforce that. And every show I go to and vend or just just um, you know visit, I, I just try to continue to get that message out. It's going to take a long time. Yeah, no, I mean the biggest thing, you know, the, the really tiny babies are you know relatively fragile. So I I sure. limit the holding of those but once you know once they're eating fuzzies um and around the time they start doing their color change i mean if you if you know how to remove them from their perch without you know torquing on them too bad they're i mean they're very easy to handle they they act like a fish out of water when they're young sometimes they get a little floppy you know they don't really <laughs> they're not the most coordinated thing but uh as they mature they're I mean, they're amazing. To, I've, I've taken mine to my daughter's school and, you know, let the kids play with them and touch them. And they, they usually just hold on to you, yeah. and as long as you don't restrain them too much as far as really gripping them, they usually are fine to just hold on and crawl around, and you can walk the snake with your hands, so to speak. And they're uh, perfectly content to be, you know, on the move, in my experience, anyway. Certainly right. Mine too. Yep. So, Ryan, you've you kind of touched on uh, or mentioned it. So how has keeping a diverse collection affected how you keep green tree pythons? Do you think it's uh, made you appreciate them more, maybe look at them with a, a, a different point of view? Um, maybe you could expand I've on that I've actually a bit. remarked, I've learned a lot of things from that, you wouldn't think would like I probably when I first got into breeding blood pythons, I probably learned more about breeding green tree pythons than I did blood pythons. Um and uh I just, yeah, I just started kind of equating, you know, blood pythons are a closed canopy um species for the most part live in dense, you know, undergrowth. Um, not a big basking species. And I when I got into blood pythons, uh I spent a lot of time talking to Tracy Barker and I was, and I would ask her like, you know, I don't see a lot of people breeding these things. And when they do, you know, there seemed to be a lot of, uh, you know, they're just hit or miss whether they would get eggs right. And she was just very matter of fact. And, and she said, they don't like to be hot uh, and they don't like to be big. She goes, they can get big, but if you grow them big, they tend to have reproductive complications and they, um, and if you keep them hot, you're pretty much going to get slugged. And 
Mm. When I got home, I just started realizing, like, wow, that's, you know, you wouldn't think things that pertain to doing blood pythons right would pertain to green tree pythons, but when you think about, you know, closed canopy rainforest and a species that is capable of getting very large in captivity, um, you know, over its maximum size in the wild, uh, blood pythons, right. you see them historically get huge in captivity, um, but they suffer the same reproductive complications as green tree pythons as far as uh, a lot of slugs um, and bad eggs. And uh, she was just very matter-of-fact that the heat, you know, and she does a lot of ultrasound stuff. And I started realizing that was all kind of in that same time frame where I was experimenting with the basking area, and I just realized, wow, the the things for breed, breeding blood pythons, you know, had far more of an effect on how I keep green tree pythons than anything I've read from other green tree python keepers. Um, hmm. So that was a that was a big one, and uh, stuff I've read about breeding black-headed pythons. Um, they're another species that their eggs, uh, blackheads and womas, their eggs seem very sensitive to contact with moisture, um, like a green right. python. So, um, so there's, I mean, there's a lot to learn from other species. Uh, and I guess the biggest thing you learn is, uh, that it is just a, it's just a green python that sits on a stick and, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, a lot of people you, don't you, like that term. No, I know. <laughs> you know, and I, it's, it's the truth though. They, you know. They, other than they sit on a stick and they're green, they're just a python, and they do things like other pythons do. They have their own little unique quirks, but it's not it's not unique as far as across the whole python chain. I mean, most pythons, if you feed them too much and get them obese, you're going to have reproductive complications. I think it's just exacerbated in a small species more so than in a bigger species. Um, you know, if you take a species like green pythons that in the wild, from what we know, it seems like, you know, 400 to 800 grams is, is the norm. And then in captivity, you know, 1,000 to 1,750, well, that's twice or three times what they should be. Any species right. that you try to keep three times bigger than it should be is going to have complications. It's, I mean, it's just as simple as that. I mean obese humans, seven-foot humans, they all have joint problems and health problems. I mean, why you'd expect a snake to be any different is, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, no-brainer to me. <laughs> yep, agreed, agreed. Absolutely, so, um, absolutely. We, uh, so you're, we know that you you like the locality stuff, but is there a point where the refinement of the locality gets to a point where it's really not locality anymore, that it's like a designer project more so than it is a locality project, do you think? Um, I don't think so because I don't know. I guess maybe if I could, I still have never, I've made some captive arrows that, were as nice as any wild cut I've ever seen, but I've never made one that was like, you know, unheard of white. And I guess maybe if I got to the point where they had so much white on them that it was unnatural, then I guess you could make that argument. But so far with the breedings I've done, it's you got high white ones, medium white ones, low white ones, all within the spectrum of what the 
you know, natural variation is. Um, I think, I guess, I can see your point if you got to where you were doing, if it doesn't look like what it was looked like anymore, then, you know, I can see that argument. But at this point, you're just trying to, if your goal is to make a high wide roo, you're just trying to make them look like the nicest high wide roos you've seen coming out of the wild. You're not, I guess in my mind, I'm not thinking that I'm going to make them so white that it's unnatural. But I guess that is possible. And I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. But for me, uh, the I think the natural forms are the four. I mean, there's there's something for everybody as the natural forms are. And it's right. not, I don't have a problem. You know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. And if you want to uh, a mostly yellow snake, you know, that's go for it. If you want a mostly black green tree python, I guess, I don't know why you want that, because there's, you know, you could keep jungle carpets or Boland's pythons, but I thought we wanted these things because they were green and sat on stick, but <laughs> I guess the, to some, having right. them look different is cool, and, and I can see the appeal to that, but as a morph breeder of other species, I definitely can, can appreciate that appeal, but I guess for me with green tree pythons, it's about that, you know, picture in that book of a green snake with white speckles sitting on a stick. So. Right, right. I know. Um, I know if you remember uh, or recall, Shane Snyder. He was an MVF member, and he was had a highway project, and it was uh, based around a ruse, but it was also I believe he had brought in some, maybe some Bioc blood. And uh, but he was that was his thing. He, was, he and he did have some pretty high white animals. Um, I think the project is still still under wraps somewhere. Still, there's still some animals around from his projects. Um, but I know oh, just talking to Shane personally about high white projects and you know why things maybe didn't you know pan out the way he initially had thought is one of his. Uh, thoughts were that a lot of animals that were being labeled as a ruse may have not been truly a ruse. They might have been maybe Meraki animals that didn't have a complete stripe, and so they couldn't, the the people that were bringing them in thought they, they would be at a higher value if they were to call them a ruse type. Um, so that, I thought that was a pretty interesting take uh, from someone who was trying to you know work on a highway project. Yeah, I mean, I... I believe I've talked to him um, back in the day. Uh, I think if memory serves me, and I'm sorry in advance, Shane, if I get this wrong, but um, I think he started out trying to do a high wider roo project, and he didn't get the results he wanted right off the bat. And um, I believe he had seen some Biocaru crosses that were high white, and so he right. went down that route. Um, there does seem to be, for whatever reason, the hybrid seems to seems to throw or can throw a lot of white. I have seen many that didn't. But um, you know, biox. The funny thing is, I've seen probably just as many wild caught biox, um, Japan type um, num for those animals from that island chain that are actually just as high white or more high white than any aru could ever dream to be. So, right. Um, 
white is definitely not a murderous trait. It's a, you know, Azuria can have it, you know, as good or better. It just seems to be more associated with Marukis or, you know, southern green cyclones. But I don't know that I agree with his statement about them. They might have been Marukis. I think you just have a deal where most of, you know, not all the roofs are high white, even in the wild. Um, and so you just, you have a certain percentage that are that way when you breed unrelated animals. Um, we don't know how many genes go into creating a high white animal. Um, and if those genes, if you breed a high white animal to another high white animal, but the genes that made one of them high white might not be the same genes that made the other one high white. And so when you right. breed those together, um, if those genes don't line up, you're not going to get high white. And so my my theory was that the babies will be carrying those genes, but you're going to have to line breed them to get those traits to come out. And so far, it uh, appears to be appears to be something to it. So I don't know if you go on in perpetuity, if you can make them crazy high white, or make them all high white, or what percentage of them will be high white, but I think you can definitely you can steer in that direction. And it and it, it I don't know why it you know I can't help but think other people have had to have thought that over the years if you were breeding for high yellow jungle carpets you wouldn't want to breed uh, you know not a high white one or a high yellow one. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure why the guys who selectively bred those to be high yellow you know. I guess the green python people just didn't get the results they wanted quick enough, so they abandoned it. And the, the in fairness, the, as long as I've been into this, the vast majority of captive breeders did not, uh, you know, we're not doing locality specific parents. So right. I can only I can only shudder at the thought of what people would be producing if you know half the effort that went into making some of these other animals had gone into making, you know, extra wide striped Jayapurs or something, you'd probably, you know, crazy yellow biox. I mean, you'd probably just have some stunning locality specimens now. But I guess it's good for me. (laughs) That's what I'm interested in. So leaves the door open for a guy like me to do something. There you go. It's also great for, uh, you know, you know, someone else thinking about doing a project to, you know, I think a lot of it is patience too. It's, you know, you get some animals and you maybe see some traits you really want to try to bring out in later generations. It's also, you know, I'm talking animals that take, you know, years, years to mature. Um, and, you know, it just takes a lot of patience. And, you know, sometimes people yeah, don't have no. tell people, well, That's 15, why. it may take, 15 years for this to happen. Um, maybe that third generation, you'll you'll see your results. So yeah, that's it turns why a lot I of people off. Everything but the arus, because I knew I was you know I was going to keep. The only way to do it is to just do it like the carpet python people and just you keep everything till it changes and you keep the best and you constantly breed the best together and eventually you can, you know make it to where most of the animals are trophies versus just a small percentage. Right. So I think we're, I think 
I think I can I can tell that I'm I'm on the right track. Um the uh I was pretty surprised I bred the the wild male to the really female. And uh like I said, I only ends up with the four babies, it's not a huge sample size, but one of them is you know, three times as wide as I ever expected that outcross pairing to produce. I can only imagine, you know, if I continue on with it and get to where they're all, you know, extremely nice looking. So Ryan, I think that goes back to the question that Buddy started kind of this part of the conversation with is when along the line of line breeding or or breeding for a particular trait does it become uh a, a designer animal, you know, when is it where you are producing a ruse that are so white that you'd never, you'd never find that animal in the wild? Is that, is that then a designer? I don't know. We'll have to see. You know? I guess when you hatch that animal, then you, you know, when you hatch one and you raise it up and it's, you know, for the craziest white well, you ever could have possibly imagined, well, then I guess you have to decide that. But right now, Everything I've produced is well within the realm of you know what nature has provided. So well, as you I alluded to, as you alluded, as you alluded to, that's already happened with carpet pythons. There are yeah, there no, are, they definitely quote, quote, you know you know pure pure jungle carpets now uh, in this country and others that are so yellow and so crisp and so clean you'd never you know you won't find that animal in the wild. No, but it doesn't change the fact that it's a jungle carpet. I mean, it's still a jungle carpet if you break it down. It, uh, it's yep. just an exceedingly, you know, nice-looking one. And there have right. been nice-looking but... ones found in the wild, but the vast majority of them aren't like the captive. So I guess, right. you know, if I get to the point where I'm producing the craziest white aroos that look nothing like any wild one, then I guess we can slap the... Uh, <laughs> designer moniker on them, but for now they're just a ruse. <laughs> right. Very nice looking a ruse. Don't, yes. Don't yeah, that. well, I mean, you know, they're all, there's, I mean, I've had, I had a, you know, quote unquote Highland animal, but, you know, had just as much white as any ruse I've ever had. So, they're, uh, I've seen Japans and Biocs that have just crazy big white cauliflower chunky spots of white. Um, you know, and if, if a guy was really doing a, a high white project, I think uh, if you if you wanted like crazy splotchy clownish weird white, you know, probably should look at the uh, the Biocs race. I, the other thing too, and I think of really high white animals is. Uh, Another Maryland guy. He, they're not condors, of course, but Ed Marino with his basins, how he's been able to really bring the white out in, in his basin projects is uh, pretty incredible. You know, I've got a feeling, you know, if someone like yourself, or maybe it will be you, were you know can can refine the. Um, uh, the white, like the way he does with that, I mean that's that's incredible. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's I lost the credit there because that's uh, he's had some wild, you know, just obscene, weird-looking white freakish animals. Um, you know, in some ways, I don't know that I want that with a green python. I don't know. I guess I 
I'd like to consistently produce animals that look like the nicest wild ones, but I don't know that I have aspirations for them to be, um, you know, unnaturally white. I don't know. I guess if I hatch one, then I'll get to decide. <laughs> get to decide if I like it or not. But I'm sure it's probably possible. If uh, I might be an old man by then, but I'll see what happens. That's okay. I don't plan on I don't plan on doing anything else. So. so We've talked a, a bit about the Aru project. Uh, I do have a question about the babies. I've I've never had an Aru as a neonate. I've heard that they can be difficult to establish as babies. Is, have you experienced that yourself? I heard the same stuff for years. It was another thing that uh, deterred me from keeping them for a long time. And the reality is, the ones I've bred, I haven't noticed any any difference. Um, I think overall the Azuras, the northern species, I would say might be a little bit easier to get started because they tend to just have a little bit more snappy attitude as babies. Um, but really it just boils down to each baby's its own snake. And if you can get them to strike relatively easily, um, you know, they're going to be easy to get established. If they're, if they're shy and they tuck their head and they, you know, try to flee and they won't bite, it's that's going to be a tough animal, regardless of which species or which locality it is. Right. Uh, the head hiders. Yeah. <laughs> you just got to pinch them and, and and to make them bite. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just add in my vast chondro uh, breeding experience, my one clutch of a ruse, all, all the babies ate heartily uh, immediately. Yeah, like I said, it, uh, I was really worried about it because, you know, for years I had the same thing. You, know, you can't make white ones and they're a pain in the butt to get started. And uh, they were always one of my favorite looking wild types, but I just I just never got into them because I thought, well, if they're not going to be white and they're not going to eat, why do I want to do that? So, But the babies so far have proven to be, you know, no harder than most, most I think individuals are individuals. But oh, good to know, definitely good to know. And Everything so with but your... Kopia. <laughs> <laughs> Kopia. yeah. Those um, Do you so your babies? Do you keep them in the same room with your adults so they they undergo the same? the same like cycling when you cycle for breeding, the, the whole room is cycled to the babies in the room as well? Um, I have done it that way. I wish I was still doing it that way, but my, my main breeding room, um, I just had too many breeders. Um, when I built my walk-in incubator, I just extended. It's basically like a five-foot hallway between my mouse breeding setup and my big snake breeding setup. Uh, there was like a five-foot gap, and I just filled it you know, framed it in. Um, so I have a small baby room in the front and the incubator is the back and uh, the babies are in there now. Uh, I preferred having them in with the adults. I think it made a big difference um, that they went through those winters, quote-unquote, during 
their, you know, life. I think when they become adults, they just, they fall into your routine so much better when they experience it their whole life versus never experiencing it. Um, right. And I don't, you know, I don't give them any heat. They're just in a wreck. Uh, so when the room got to 70, the babies got to 70, I didn't stop feeding them. I thought that was always silly because, you know, in the wild, I can't picture a snake turning down a meal um, mm. if the weather was slightly cooler than it should be. <laughs> and it didn't, you know. So I wish if I had more room in my main snake room, I would I would ideally love to have the babies in that room so that they can... I think there's something to be said for consistency. When I first started breeding snakes, I changed... When I cycled my snakes for probably the first 10 years, I bred snakes. It, it might have been November one year, December the next, January the next. There was no rhyme or reason for why other than I was usually trying to raise up something. So I pushed put off the breeding season trying to get something big enough. And uh, I finally just settled on October 1st is when I start cycling. And I've been doing that for the better part of a decade, and I've noticed that a lot of my snakes are well into follicular development far even before I start cycling because they just, you know, they've had such consistency, such a good routine or a routine they're used to that uh, they just know it's coming and when it's coming and they just dial in. And I think the babies would would nothing do nothing but benefit from being dialed into that same yearly rhythm, so when they became adults, it would just be second nature to, you know, that was the time to do right. that. Makes sense. Yeah, it does It does make sense. I think, um, you know, just from experience breeding other species, the ones that breed best for me are the ones that either I've produced or I've acquired at, a, at an early age. It's uh, much more difficult to acquire a, an adult animal, uh, whether it's been bred or not, uh, before from somebody else that, you know, they're just harder. Not that certainly that it can't be done, but they're harder than the ones that you've gotten early. Well, they are harder. I think the wild-caught ones are easier to breed than the average adult somebody else's raised. <laughs> so, really? That's been my experience. <laughs> I, just, I think most of uh, I mean, that's like the Aru I just got is probably, I haven't weighed her, but she's got to be twice as big as any chondra I have. And... I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't know. The only experience I have with snakes that size has all been terrible, but I just thought, well, she has the look I want, and she is what she is, so I'll give it a shot, but I don't, uh, I don't know. I just soon have a wild caught one that was, you know, 400 grand. <laughs> I would figure I had better <laughs> luck with that one than this, you know, 10-year-old captive animal. So. Yeah, what well, is something to say if an animal... If a you know wild caught animals survive the you know being captured you know taken to a facility and held there for you know who knows how long and survives all that and then survives the trip over here to the states it's definitely uh definitely a fighter definitely got a you know definitely has a hardy gene yeah no I mean I think the key to breeding the wild stuff is just consistency and leave them alone but they probably stress out a little easier, but once they start eating and get established and you, you know, de-parasite them, they, I don't know, I find them to be, for the most part, you know, they're just like all the others. Once you get them past the first 
you know, four months or so. Pretty bulletproof at that point, in my experience. Good deal. Good deal. Well, I guess as a guy that's into locality stuff, uh, there's not a lot of uh, breeders to pick from, so you tend to have to start your your projects with wild cut stuff. It's just, you know, it's unfortunate. I would rather I would rather not do that, but it's uh, they just there's just not the the selection, I guess, from the captive gene pool to pick from. So. Right. It seems. I don't know whether it's you know just because of being on Facebook, but it seems to me that the locality animals seem to kind of have. I don't know they were ne- not saying they were never out of favor, but um, it seems like a lot of people have really picked locality animals as projects to work with and, and try to breed, and which I think is a good thing. And I don't know whether it's just, um, you know, just because we're exposed to more on Facebook, or at least I am, and I you know, see more people working with different projects um, that I wasn't aware of when my world just kind of encompassed what was on MVF. Um, you know, I guess it could, it could always have been that way, and I just wasn't aware of it. But at least to me, it seems like there's a, a genuine interest in, in locality projects. Yeah, I mean, like, there always has been. Um, it's just kind of the squeaky wheel theory, you know, the the guys that were, you know, heading the club or leading the charge with green pythons were all, you know, predominantly not... Um, into locality stuff, and in fact, a lot of them, you know, actively, you know, went out of their way to to dissuade even the notion of a locality animal. And uh, so you did have, you know, a lot of keepers either if they were into locality, just kept their mouth shut and didn't really, you know, get involved in the community, or they, um, you know, and the locality stuff typically is cheaper. Um, out of the wild, and that's that's always appealing to people. It's a uh, it's a shame. I wish, uh, you know, I'm not for any of them being super cheap because it can tend to lead to, you know, I think if a cheap animal can get treated like a cheap animal, and green pythons shouldn't be treated as a throwaway animal. Not that any animal should be, but uh, I don't know the. When I first got into this, there was not much place for locality guys. It uh, was not a friendly atmosphere. Um, in fact, uh, NVF was really started <laughs> as the not, you know, mainstream Green Tree Python forum, um, more hmm. open-minded, so to speak. Uh, so I'm for, uh, forever grateful to Greg for starting NVF because. I believe I was actually kicked out of Congo Web at a certain point. So, <laughs> first, uh, <laughs> I uh, I like Greg's form a lot. Always have. I was actually I was actually somewhat sad when it, you know, kind of got co-opted to, you know, the more mainstream keepers. But it's not a bad thing. It's just it used to be kind of the uh, the safe haven for the non-mainstream keeper. But right. Like I said, it all has its uh, you know, pluses and its minuses. But right. Yep. 
I think the availability of the locality animals is probably why you see so many new people with locality stuff. I don't know that they, you know, like locality more than the crosses or not, but they, it's probably just what they were exposed to, what they had available right in front of their face, and so that's what they went with. Uh, there's no, there's no question. I think that's right. I think the, the locality animals, especially the animals now uh, bred in captivity, they're just becoming more and more prevalent, common, and the price point, you know, to be honest, is it's where most people want to enter the chondro, uh, you know, in, enter the chondro game, so to speak. Uh, they, you know, most people don't want to spend uh, two thousand dollars on a designer red neo as their first chondro. Uh, even if they like uh, high black or high high blue animals, um, you know, well, most the of the designers they're probably they're probably not going to get what they think they're buying either. That's the <laughs> I think that's I true. think that that might be part of what steered you know some if you want to call it favor back to locality. It might be the uh, you know if you really pay attention. I don't know what percent. I couldn't. I mean, I can only go off what I see on the internet. But when I first started doing this, most of the people I know that paid for designer animals did not end up with, you know, what they were hoping for. And I think mm-hmm. that uh, that probably. I mean, I, I if I had spent four thousand dollars on a snake and it didn't turn out, and I and you know, it's, everybody knows that's the risk you take, but. Um, you know, you all secretly hope it's going to be you that gets lucky, and when you don't, uh, <laughs> you know, I think I think after you spend that kind of money, you just kind of, I don't know, it takes, yeah. it would take something away from it for me, and so that was part of the reason buying wild-caught stuff was appealing to me was that I knew what I was getting when I bought it, and I knew, you know, more than likely their babies were going to follow that trend. You know, they might not be as high white, but they, you know, or they might be, I mean, I started out breeding, you know, typical sarong type animals and you know what, the babies all look like the parents <laughs> pretty much yeah. uh, without exception. And, uh, I think there's, that's comforting in a way. Um, you know, and it can go either way. I, I, I can see both, both points of view. Um, like I said, for me, I guess I'm a homer. I like a green stick on a snake. Or a green snake on a stick, and so I don't. Uh, right. I would have been devastated to spend that kind of money and ended up with, uh, you know, and a lot of the. And this might sound terrible, but I, a lot of the crosses, I didn't think if they weren't like extreme looking, they were actually fairly plain. You know, the green wasn't right. that spectacular. The there wasn't the blue highlights that you would have gotten in a lot of them. You know, they might have had a few just random yellow specks, and I just, it seemed like you either got a good-looking snake or you got one that didn't even look as good as a locality animal. So I think, uh, you know, that's probably the number one thing that, you know, steered me away. And I just like the way, you know, Mother Nature designed them to be. So I never found it necessary to try to go to the extreme with them, but... Well, you know, as somebody that, and Ryan, I know you're the same way um, with the ball pythons. You know, I, I'm used to appreciating extremes in uh, differences from, quote, the normal ball python, but it's so different when you look at green tree pythons, at least just for me. 
um, you know, that's the big difference for me between green tree pythons and any other, you know, any other snake that I've come across is, is they, they they're just all phenomenal in, in, in their quote unquote. Oh yeah. No, state. I mean, there is not really a bad one. <laughs> it's not, that's not There's really, not. I wasn't trying to say that. It's just, they're just right. Yeah, as their their nor their default normal is better than you know most other species. So. Yeah, I mean if Absolutely. you're a guy that has the same interest as us anyway. It uh, and I'm a python lover. I mean I like them all, but you know there's just something about the the tiny green one that gets my heart fluttering. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. I don't need to morph, I guess. Of a selectively bred mutant or hybrid, but I don't we're, um, do we're keeping... No, no, and that's um, you know one of the things that uh, Buddy and I have, have really preached, not just with green trees but reptiles, is just tolerance. You know, just just have tolerance, whether it's you know what you like, what you believe in. You know, have some tolerance for other members of the community. Yeah, well, that that was, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, for me, I felt like that was extremely lacking when I first got into this. Um, I didn't, I, I really didn't, uh, I didn't find much enjoyment in the, the community back then. Mm-hmm. It seemed like you were either you were either with them or against them, and mm-hmm. they actively, you know, they went out of their way to say what you were doing was you know, it was silly because what you believe in didn't even exist in their minds. So, you know, when the bulk of the community, or at least the loudest voices were that, it uh, it was quite the turnoff. It, it actually had, you know, quite a profound effect on me. I didn't, uh, I wasn't the most social with most green python people because I thought most of them were pretty closed-minded and, you know, you didn't follow what they thought. And there was no place for it. So. Buddy, you can comment much better than I am. Uh, you've been certainly a member, an active member, a lot longer than I have. Have you felt uh, a change in that philosophy? Uh, I think you know, in general, the, the community's kind of there's been a big shift. There's been there's always uh, uh, seem to have been big personalities that kind of drove the both forums um, active. Um, I know when I got, I was introduced to the MVF. The it was kind of introduced to me as the back door, like the the after party to the Conjurer web. Um, so you, you know, the Conjurer web was, you know, they they really wanted, you know, captive bred animals. They had a highlight on designer, and then uh, Greg Schroeder's form was more of the, um, uh, you know. To kind of everyone, locality folks were over there, um, and people that were, you know, I guess doing locality mixing designer were there, and and for them, there were still some big personalities over there, and and uh, if you didn't get their way um, or you know agree with them, even if you were, if you could disagree with them on a uh, I guess you could just prove it. Just prove that you know what you're saying is not right. Um, 
it it would be a long and lastly debate, and it was more personality was at times factual. Um, so you was there, there was some of that, um, and you know Ryan is some of that in the community in the past, but I think a lot of those folks have kind of left on all the other things or aren't as vocal anymore. Hmm. Hmm. That's that's uh, that's good to hear. Yeah. No. It's. Uh, I think it's a lot more. And maybe I just I don't care as much as I used to. So maybe that has something to do with it. But it's. Uh, you know. It. I think a lot of that diehard. This is what it is. Has been so completely disproven with the field research at this point that it, uh, you know, it kind of makes a lot of their arguments not look very good with the light we have now, with the information available now that wasn't available then. Right. But, yeah, and like you said, those personalities, most of them aren't around anymore. And, I look, I don't want to talk crap about a lot of these people there. They have great intentions. I I firmly think everybody should buy captive bred green tree pythons. I would, you know, I wholeheartedly endorse all of those things. But I just never, you know, the rampant and complete disregard for locality and even the idea that there could be a locality, yet alone two species, just, you know, it's a uh, it was not accepted back then. So. Right. I think it's all been pretty well proven and accepted at this point. It kind of makes a lot of their arguments seem null and void. So. And I'm not a micro locality well, guy. I don't. Uh, I don't. You're there's not. no difference between a, a highland and a lowland and a. You know, it's all there's the northern species, the southern species, and that's pretty much. You know, biox are kind of weird. Um, but, and the animals, once you get to the bird's head peninsula, seem to be slightly different, and you get out to the Vogel Gap are pretty different, but for the most part, the mainland northern snakes are all the same snake, Illumina, Bokandini, uh, you know, Jayapura, Cyclops, it's all the same snake. It's just, yeah. you know, it's variation on a theme. Aru's are slightly different than Maruki's, but you know, the southern it's it's very easy to tell uh as there is from a viridus. I'm quite confident that if you handed me a hundred wild caught animals I could easily tell you whether it was Azuris or Viridus. Um I would probably be, I don't know, seventy five, eighty percent accurate to the region it was from, but that would be as close as you know. I think I could tell Volo Gap, you know, Island animals, biotic animals would be easy to tell for the most part. Mainland, right. northern stuff, you know, that'd be easy to tell. Aru's easy to tell from Maruki's. Maruki's probably impossible to tell from Aru or Australian. But, and so to me, that's pretty much what there is. There's two species in mind, you know, from what I've seen so far. There might be some other hidden things in there, but it appears to be two species, um, and then each species has a few oddballs, like, you know, kofi owls are a little bit odd. But a green kofi owl looks like a masul, which is another island out in the, 
you know, roll the get up. So I think okay. you have the cluster. You have the main, the mainland north stuff is all the same snake. The uh, roll gap snakes, including some of the sarong stuff, are pretty, pretty much the same thing. And then the biop chain is another thing. You know, easy to tell apart. But I don't buy into all the, right. you know, this is that and that like is this. Do you have any desire to, to travel to Indonesia, or have you traveled over there? No, I haven't. Uh, it would be it would be pretty cool to to uh, get over there. Um, yeah, I would. some regions I guess are not the safest places to go. So you you know, as a guy with two kids, I'd have to consider those those things before I went. So more than likely, if Safe. I ever go looking for green pythons, it'll be it'll be. Uh, Australia, you know, Australian ones. <laughs> Do you say it's not uh, safe to travel over there politically, or it's just unsafe because of the uh, the conditions? Uh, Do you know, certain regions are politically unstable, and so I don't know. I mean, I don't know all yeah. the particulars, but I've heard some regions aren't the greatest to go to. Um, and remarkably, you know, you read the same thing. Uh, I still uh, pay attention to you know, tropical fish, freshwater stuff. And there's uh, guys that are, you know, big time into rainbow fish and they go all over Indonesia and Australia looking for rainbow fish. And so reading their travel stories is, you know, remarkably similar to what you would experience trying to find pythons. So it's just another way you can, and birders, you know, you can find amazing pictures of green pythons taken by, you know, birders from around, Indonesia, um, right. So there's, and reading those people's travel deals, they just talk about some regions. You just have to be, you know, more conscious about how you behave and what's going on politically at the time. And it's just hard to get Buddy. there. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> I can't Definitely. imagine how hard it would be to get to a roo. I've read stories from rainbow fish guys going to a roo, and it's like you got to fly to you know, the mainland and then catch a boat. Or sometimes you can fly to certain islands, but some of them you have to get a boat and it's not like they have ferries on a given day. And most of these, you know, you might have to charter your own boat, you know, pay right. somebody to take you out there. So I think logistically it would be, if you're trying to do something in just a couple of weeks, it's probably not very realistic. You could get stuck, you know, at one place waiting to try to find a way to get to the next place. So that's kind Buddy, of the beauty of desire. traveling in Australia. Right. Buddy, any, any wow. desire to go to Indonesia? Uh, I'd like to go to the whole region, Asia, Australia. I'd like to get to New Zealand as well. Absolutely. Go catch some Nautilus and her green geckos, <laughs> Tuataras. Yeah, I'd love to see those in person. Mm. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. So what you're saying is you're just a sucker for any green reptile. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. I know I know the feeling. Well, listen, we're we're getting relatively we're we're already way past the uh, live episode, and we're uh, getting close to the end of the uh, recorded episode. I know we did want to talk uh, briefly, and we've we've uh, 
asked our last couple of guests about, and, and this has been a topic on the MVF about, you know, Facebook, social media, uh, advantages, disadvantages. Is it taking away uh, from the forums? Is it adding to the forums? Uh, Ryan, do you have any thoughts, opinions about uh, what Facebook in particular or social media has done to the chondro community in particular or or the reptile community at large? Yeah, I definitely. I think... Uh... I don't know if saying overall it's been bad is necessarily the right way to say it, but um, Facebook has made the world even smaller. It's like the Internet made the world smaller, and Facebook's made it even that much smaller. And uh, um, I was kind of a latecomer to Facebook. Uh, I I avoided Facebook like the plague for as long as I could, but the handwriting was on the wall that... that, uh, the hobby was just, well, not even the hobby, but, you know, humanity is moving to, you know, communicating on Facebook. And it was kind of one of those conform or, or become a relic sort of thing. So uh, yeah. I ended up conforming. And, I mean, I love Facebook. It's a, it's a, It can be an extremely powerful tool, but it also, it has a lot of, uh, a lot of downside. Information just changes so quickly and so fast. And, it's even a more freer place for people to espouse crazy ideas with no long-term, mm-hmm. you know, repercussions. Ram- ramifications. On the That's right. Yep. It's, uh, I mean, I can't even imagine if you, you know, went back on MVF, the just amazing treasure trove of conversations that people have had and usually the most hotly debated, you know, argumentative, so to speak, topics are the, the most interesting and the ones you can, you know, if you sort through everybody's stuff, you can learn the most. Um, and those right. archives that you get with forums are just a resource that Facebook is not not even close to, you know, duplicating. Yep. And so I... Yep. I, I've seen lots of forums dying on the vine because of the advent of Facebook, and it it, it does really sadden me that it, it's gone that route. To, um, Agreed. You know, I don't I don't see it getting better, unfortunately. Um, you know, and I hope I hope some of the forums can survive and thrive in the new you know social media era because. You know, those archived conversations, I can't even, if I was getting into this hobby today and I could go back and read, you know, some of the debates, I I, I can't imagine the things that a person could learn just from reading those that you're never going to get from Facebook. I mean, Facebook is, you know, most of, even most of the posts on a forum are pretty much like, you're here, look at my snake, everybody says how great it is, and that, you know, oh, it's pretty, it's great, but... Those conversations, let's be frank, you don't really learn anything from those. So it's the it's those hotly debated ideal, you know, ideology forum discussions that are archived as long as that forum is going. That are the treasure troves, and pretty much any good debate, you know, within a, a few days is gone. It's over. It's never to be found again. And uh, yep. That's too bad because it just turns into the here. Look at my snake and push push like you. 
you know. You, you've hit the nail on the head, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that a few people uh, have been trying to do is to try to link Facebook and use it. I mean, it's there. It's not going anywhere. You know, you're not going to get rid of it. So let's try to use it, you know, to promote um, to promote the forum. And, uh, you know, I don't know how successful it's going to end up being in the long run, but there have been some attempts to – you know, there is now a Facebook group that's dedicated to the MVF, and there are a lot of links that um, will link you from the Facebook MVF back to the original MVF, you know, the forum. And, yeah. you know, it's one of those things, if you can't beat them, join them kind of deal, I think, mentality, because, you know, that is the way that you're going to get new people um, into the hobby. Maybe you don't want new people into the hobby, and and that's well, we need that's new people. Fine. I mean, that's I don't know how anybody could not want new people, or there wouldn't be customers for their wares, so to speak. You know, it's uh, if you don't have an influx of new people, uh, I guess the hobby kind of dies on the vine. And so we need those new people. Uh, Facebook, I mean. Can you- I must be a member of eight different, eight or nine different green tree python things. I don't even know how I keep them all straight or separate or, you know, <laughs> it's like, is it annoying to post the same picture on 10 different things? You know, it's just not <laughs> yes. And oh, uh, yes. <laughs> so that's the other thing I hate about Facebook is it's like, I mean, let's just use liasis, the genus liasis. There's like three liasis pythons. Um, Facebook pages, and it's just like, are you kidding? There's not, you know, you couldn't have one forum dedicated to license. It wouldn't work. How can you have three right. Facebook pages? You know, it's just, it, yep. I don't know. I wish there was, I don't know how you'd, I don't know how you'd go the other way. I think Facebook should be used for the, here's a look at my picture of my snake, and the forum should be used for, let's have a meaningful discussion where, yeah, some people might get their feathers ruffled and you know, but that's where the true learning happens, I think. I don't know, yeah, everybody's Facebook. sitting around agreeing with each other, you know, nobody learns anything. And <laughs> what <laughs> were you going to say about it? For the, the now. Facebook for the, definitely I agree, it's perfect for posting photos, and but, you know, in-depth discussions just, just aren't going to happen there, and if they do, they're lost. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, it's the, also, the forum is a way to do it. Yeah, and I noticed that on people seem to be like they wouldn't get involved in a forum, almost like you don't have something nice to say, you're not going to say it. Whereas on Facebook, everybody just feels this liberty to get on there and say whatever they want, and they you know very little repercussion from the rest of the community because ten minutes later it's gone. It's in the abyss of information. Right. Um, yep. I don't know. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, and I see Facebook's a lot like the forums where people, you know, their screen name is not who they are. And I've always, I don't know. I guess I, I rarely take people seriously when their screen name isn't their real name because it's just like if you're not willing to sign your, you know, say who you are, it's just always. I don't know. Facebook seems like it's just as bad where everybody's screen name is like who are these people? I don't know who any of these people are. It's you know, right? But, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's a good point. I I don't know. I've never understood the screen name. That was some weird. 
weird thing. It's like, <laughs> post, what are you hiding from? It's like, post who you are, you know? But, so, and I noticed in the ball Buddy. Python world, you know, Facebook has definitely had an effect on prices and people are, oh, it's no. such an easy forum to put stuff out there, you know, with very yep. little repercussion that it's had a bad effect. So, the world we live yep. in, I guess. Nah. And uh, I, I was like you. I was a latecomer, uh, relatively latecomer to Facebook, but it was one of those things that it's, you know, like I said, it's it's here. It's not going anywhere, at least in the short-term future. And so you better, you know, be a part of it and try to uh, use it to your advantage uh, because if you don't, you're going to be at a disadvantage. Um, yep. You can't control it, you know. You can't control it. No, I just like right. I said. I just I think ten years from now, if if all the forums have you know disappeared or get so little traffic that they become basically non-existent, I think that's going to be a you know a great disservice to to the hobby because I mean I wish even like Condor Web, I was never really that involved with Condor Web, but I would it would be interesting to go read some of the discussions you know just like a little time capsule of what was going on at the time. And now yep. all that, you know, all those are there part of the scrap heap of history. Nobody will ever read. So it, uh, I think they are still available. Said, I think, um, I was on, I just, maybe like two ago, I just did a search and I found it. I think, uh, you Whoever, still have to sign in because I think I was kicked out, so I don't know that I could sign in. <laughs> well, you can't I'll, put it anymore, I'll sign but it's in. all still there to read. Well, okay. I'll so sign in, Ryan. I'll, I'll sign in, Ryan, and you can use my username and password. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, be go, I'll, be, I'll be curious to go read what got me excommunicated. So. <laughs> if I remember correctly, um, whoever was hosting their – whoever their host was for the board – it might have been Yuku, uh, and I guess when they took it over, it just got archived. So mm, okay. I, actually, I think how I found it was I was doing a search on a thread I had done on MVF through, and uh, a thread popped up, or a, a, a search return came back for Condor Web, and I clicked it for Condor Four, and I clicked it, and it was there. It was the whole board, and I like scrolled through and. Saw a whole bunch of old posts about him, and you know, huh, yeah, me asking all the that newbie out. questions. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, thinking around. Actually, I'm gonna now. I'm gonna go look. Yeah, I don't know how you. That's the thing. It's like if these forums close, it's just I don't. I I would hate to see that information just you know be gone. It's it yeah. really. I, I mean, I really. I just think it'd be a shame. Okay, go to our Facebook page. So if you go into Morelli, go to uh, our GTP Keeper page, I'm going to post it up. Nice. Okay. Now i got to sort through the million green tree pipes on Facebook pages. <laughs> uh, GTP Keeper Radio. Okay. G- A lot of people have tried to imitate, imitate our, our <laughs> GTP Keeper Radio uh <laughs> Page, but we don't allow that, right, Bill? There we they go. They have all failed. 
they they have all failed miserably. Listen, oh, man, we got four hundred and crap. <laughs> we we got four hundred and thirty oh four hundred and thirty nine likes now. Thank you, Ryan. There you go. I just hit you <laughs> off. I didn't even realize, man. Like, <laughs> wow. See, I'm not awesome. even a very good face. <laughs> I don't see the link though. It didn't show up. Mm, I haven't I haven't seen it yet. Can you see it, Ryan? No, I can't see it. All I see is uh, there's a picture of a very nice looking young man holding a green tree python. And that's what I okay, see. Okay, hit too. the refresh button. Okay. Nope, there it is. Yep. There we go. Nice. Let's see if I can get in there. Obviously, oh, Ryan, Ryan tonight you'll be uh, you'll be fake. I mean, wow. There's yeah, they're they're there. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. No, that's huh. I'm gonna have to thumb through that. That's uh, that's very I'm, cool, buddy. I'd probably probably behave badly in a few posts. So I'll have to go check out my behavior. <laughs> and we huh. know your yeah, screen name will be. We know your screen name will be Ryan Young, right? Not some. That's uh, right. I don't believe I ever used Yahoo, anything else. Yahoo at sixty nine or anything like that, right? No, no. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna thumb through there and and find you. <laughs> there must be something. There must be some incriminating evidence in there somewhere. I'm gonna find it. Man. Well. Yeah, we got to keep the forums going. We've got to keep yep. we got to keep the info. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we, buddy, we kind of skipped through the uh, MVF news because uh, you were partying with Katy Perry at halftime. Didn't get on a show right. on time. One of the uh, things that I was going to say is, you know, there were like four or five chondro clutches over the last two days. I haven't seen yeah. one thread about them. I haven't seen one thread about them on the MVF. They were all posted on Facebook. You know, right. and maybe maybe they'll make their way to the MVF in the next couple of days, but you know, I don't know. There were like four or five people that had chondro clutches and all of them were on Facebook, you know. So, yeah, I, yeah. I think I mean, the other thing cuz to load them onto the forum, you have to load them onto a photo hosting site first. Right. Mhm. So I think that's yep. the other thing, laziness is you know, getting to people too, where it's Facebook is just instant off your phone, you know, and a lot of people's phone is their camera. So yeah, from the absolutely. camera to Facebook with no, you know, other step and so it's uh you know, it's just another reason why I think Facebook, you know, is taking over. Well, I'm, I'm I'm actually looking back at some old threads here. It's pretty funny. I should be pay attention to us on the on the uh, radio show here, but I'm um I actually found a really long thread about Canary Condors when they first came in, Ryan. Oh, so yeah, was I was so, I on there? Did I say anything? Um, that's what I was looking for. Cause I was wondering if this was your your down. Um, but Greg Schroeder was actually on there. Greg Schroeder yeah, posted on nice. that thread. So, yeah, no, okay. I remember all the, oh, it's fake. That's not real. <laughs> right. <laughs> Photos, photoshopped? There is no Canary Island. It's like, <laughs> I remember all right. Is that right? 
There is no Kofi yeah, Owens. Uh, that's huh? what, that was what it was originally. Because when they first came out, they weren't calling him Kofi Owens. That was still kind of a secret. So uh-huh. they were calling him Canary Island, and people were like, "See, that's they're they're just a bunch of liars. They're all, you know, there is no Canary Island other than over, you know, across the world." And so it was a big. That's what they hung their head on. Yeah, the Canary mm-hmm. Islands were off the coast of Africa. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, so that was the. Uh, it's like it's like. Well, I'm pretty sure, if memory serves me, I argued that the reason why you guys are hating these things is because you've been trying to make high yellow ones, and here's some naturally high yellow ones. So it's going right. to affect your market. So. Right. Yeah, it was received about the same. They were received the, the same. Actually, the MVF. So it was really, really. If, if ever, anyone here wants to join the MVF, go over there and sign up. And if you look up, uh, I think like Canary Cons, it was a really long, drawn-out debate and thread on that subject. And on, there's another great one on there is, do I need to miss my chondro? Uh, <laughs> that was yeah, a really good one. Yeah, I think I was involved a, in that one. Yeah, that, that's a lot of... Um, a lot of good information in there. A lot of, you know, thinking. Um, Terry Phillip uh, offered a lot of information in there as well. Um, that actually was a turning point for me. I was a, one of those people that woke up every day and missed it, Mike Andros. Um, at a point, I was like, I'm stopping. Um, I'm not going to do it anymore. And it was like every a month I woke up and expected all my condors to be dead because I didn't miss them down the day before. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, one of the first things I took away in my what can I take away and see what happens. Right. So definitely. Yeah, can, hydration can, so, seems the, to be the biggest scapegoat for everything nowadays. Yeah, hydration. Is that what you said? Oh, yeah, man. It seems like everybody blames, you know, everything on hydration. And it's just, I don't know. I don't buy it. But. Well, I mean, kind of expound on that a little bit. You think that that chondros have the ability to hydrate themselves without misting? Yeah, I think they're they're very good drinkers. Almost any time you put fresh water in their cage, right after the lights go out, they're down there sucking it down. So. Mm-hmm. I think I just think it's. I think hydration has become the new. If you can't explain it, you just blame it on the dehydrated. And there's really no way to refute it. So it's just kind of like, well, my chondro, you know, doesn't crap often enough. It's dehydrated. You know, and it doesn't do this often enough. It's dehydrated, and it's just like, no, that's that's not true, man. You can look at the back of their heads. They have these giant, fat, bulbous heads. When's the only time you see a chondro? with a flat, shrunken head, either when it's fresh off the boat from Indo, which is a dehydrated chondro, or when a female lays eggs, which is a dehydrated chondro. Other than that, they're right. all, you know, big, fat, bulky heads. You know, it's just they're lazy. They don't move. I, You know, water, everybody blames everything on water nowadays, and it's just, it's, I think movement. For me, movement is the thing that, you can pretty much blame most things on the lack of movement. And movement. It's, huh. it's it's pretty much scientifically proven with almost everything. Lethargy equals bad problem. You know? 
almost yeah. every animal in the world that's lazy and doesn't move around, us included, get health problems from it. And I don't know. Maybe so that's one of the simplest explanations usually is the right one. You know, I've got some chondros, you know, in my collection, Ryan, that are notoriously, even at night, you know, they, they don't even get that head down posture there. And I know they just stay in the same place all the time. So, I mean, you know, is your suggestion Have you, you, know, them? you get that animal out? Have I starved them? Yeah. Well, I've, I've got one male that's been off, off feed. It's an adult male for like two months, uh, which, you know, See, that's I think crazy this time to me. I've never had a male, since I've been feeding them based on their behavior, I've never had a male refuse a meal. You could take a a male that was locked up with a female, two hours later put him in his own cage and hand him a mouse and he'll eat it. And he's going to eat it, yeah. Yeah. So a snake that can afford not to eat is getting too much of something. Because I guarantee you you're not going to find a snake in the wild. That's going to go, oh, that mouse just walked by, man. And normally I would eat that thing, but i just not going right now. That's just not how biology works. Right. So a snake that can refuse to eat is either unhappy for some reason or it has so much food and fat reserves that it doesn't need to. Mm. So you have to make them think they need to. (laughs) Make them hungry. I'll tell you, you'll see. The most profound changes in your snakes if you if you just change how you feed them. They'll move, they'll no. crap. They take these tiny little craps because they move all the time. There's no way a snake could prolapse taking a dump like they do when the you tiny. feed them like I feed them. Yeah. Right. Very, very good. All good stuff. Yeah. Yep. Very good. Guys, I think it's time to wrap. Okay. We got about Ryan. We can't thank you. Can't thank you enough for uh, can't thank you enough for coming on the show with us, Ryan. No problem. Well, at least I didn't break down crying when the uh, Patriots won. So. <laughs> oh no, Miller. <laughs> and it's not that I'm a Patriots fan. I'm just a Patriots hater. So. It's, uh... Gotcha. Yeah, huh? yeah. I know huh? you were watching. I know. I know you saw how that game ended. I did. I saw how it ended. So I was uh, crying I a little bit inside. <laughs> <laughs> well, the show's going to have a better tell ending. me it was a Super Bowl. Yes, it was. Well, I would have rather spent my time yakking with you fellas than watching the Patriots win. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, good. Well, we Absolutely. keep going. All right, guys. Well, All right, Ryan. All right, guys. Well, hey. uh, chat with you later. Thank yeah, you, Ryan. To see some uh, keep up, keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks. We will. Take see care, you, Ryan. Bye, buddy. Um, I guess in in the next uh, sixty seconds, we have. Uh, I guess you can tell the audience, the listeners, what we've got planned next. Yeah, um, we have show coming up with. It's going to be a Condor Roundtable, and it is going to incorporate women Condor Keepers. A little bit different yes. take on the Condor Roundtable. Um, so we're, we're 
We have two confirmed. The third, um, I'm 90% certain there will be there. So, And we are Excellent. shooting for that day on March 15th. March 15th. The eyes of March. The Ides of March. And is is there any major sporting event that night that I should be aware of? <laughs> I think there's a uh I think there's a cricket game on in, in England or that day that but uh we'll work around that. Oh. Yeah, we need to date then. <laughs> All right. All right, Bill. Good show. Talk to you, Good show, buddy. All right. All right. Listeners, buddy have have a good rest of your rest of your week. We'll see you next month. Yes, we will. Bye, everyone.